Emergency medicine extract with Sanjay and Mike. I gotta say, we've been doing this because I remember we made a mention a few months ago. How like how long have we been doing this? Because COVID just warped the whole yeah, time it was, system. We're like, yeah, it's been like nine months, I think. Yeah, we said like two or three years or something, and it was pointed out to us after the fact by our crack editing team, which mainly is one human, EJ. That it's been five years that we've been doing this, which is that's amazing, actually. Long, five years, twelve months, that's sixty episodes. This is your sixty-first episode, and officially we've run out of stuff to talk about. But this, you know what's interesting? I actually because sometimes Mike and I sit around for a few minutes before we start recording and we're like, is anything going on? What do you want to do? You know, because this is part of it just to loosen us up a yeah. little bit before the big fight. You know, we kind of yeah. like you just, know, just, we're just getting into a sweat. And we couldn't really come up with anything. Part of it is just because the weather outside is rainy and gross right now. Yeah. It's kind of got us a little low energy, mm. both of us, for some reason. Well, it's, so you're in March. And so maybe, maybe, and I'm hopeful that you're thinking spring's around the corner, or maybe you're listening in late March and spring has already come. And so you're feeling that sort of energy that comes with spring. But we're like just after the holidays, and it's gray, and it's cold, and it's wet, and the football season, the college football season is just about over. And it just feels a little flat. Well, it's just, you, you also, it's like, you know, the holidays were, uh, they're a lot, yeah. you know? And, and I had great holidays, yeah. really great so holidays. So did we this year. Like, it was really nice. But then you just need like a month to yeah, decompress to just, from that, to just yeah. recover. Recharge. Recharge. Reset. You yeah. can reset daily expectations and stuff like that, you know? But one of those expectations that I have to reset, I haven't told you about this, is so... Mike and I, this year, we both worked uh, New Year's Eve. Yes. Like the, you know, so t- together. Happy New Year's Eve. <laughs> that should surprise no, none of the listenership. <laughs> yeah. But what was interesting was, so, you know, the, the kids really wanted, they like every, my kids like every holiday. And they got super into this idea of the countdown. You know, okay. the countdown from 10 mm-hmm. to, and then screaming Happy New Year and blowing their little blowers and the hats and stuff. So... You know, they ended up doing it on New Year's, which I wasn't here for because I was working. But then, then the next I mean, day, New Year's like New Year's Eve. You know, but New, but they, New Year's Eve. They did New it York like because you were home by uh, New- not even New York time. They did it at like their bedtime. They, they did. It's like, just like a recorded video, right? Paris time. But they were so excited about it. The next day, they were like, you know, want to do it with Daddy when Daddy's home. So we did it again. Okay. We did it on New Year's the day, and now you know, it's a did, tradition. We and do now this every day. Every day Every night, they're like, want to do the countdown. So that's one of those things I have to wean off very slowly. The countdown. The countdown. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. No, my my New Year's Eve consisted of working until 11, but I actually got home with one minute to spare. My wife was over at neighbors and they were having something and miraculously, everybody was like, like passed out in their chairs, you know, like sort of. Because we're old. Yeah. Yeah. We're we're old. But then my kids, you know, they're teenagers and it was pouring rain and they were out till like two in the morning doing, I don't know what, but it terrifying me basically the whole time. Right. You know, and they're not like young teenagers. They're like old teenagers, you know, a couple of, one of them's, you know, definitely an adult, but uh, it was uh, terrifying. And so I really, you know, I don't know what the, what, how to say it anymore, but like now New Year's is just full of like danger and scare to me. And it's like, it's what awful. A, what a it's change. Awful. It really is. Because you actually have never really liked New Year's Eve. No, no, I've had a lot of good New Year's Eve. I just think that it's like, it's played out. You know, for me, it went from exciting to like, wow, this is like a Valentine's Day kind of holiday with friends, right? Where it's like, yeah, there's oh. a lot of pressure. You do all this stuff. 
you make a reservation. Every, you're trying to coordinate with 12 different other people who are all worried that it's not going to be fun enough. And then it kind of falls flat most of the time anyway. You know, which is uh, leads right into the point of because, you know, Rhea loves holidays. My daughter loves holidays. You just said she loves all holidays. Yeah. Yes. The, o- the only way to wean her off this countdown thing. Uh, to wean her is up to, <laughs> to Valentine's Day. Yeah. So now we're doing the next one. We're doing a countdown to Valentine's Day. Yeah, we're Day. titrating one down and we're titrating up uh, on the other. But like, yeah, Valentine's Day is a great holiday when you have little kids. Yeah. Right? Super fun and making little, little cards, cards and yeah, she loves decorations. It. That holiday is better than others, some others when they're little because it's not so dependent on like extravagant gifts and stuff like that. Now, once you're, you know, into the dating fiance sort of period, then it becomes a little bit more pressure filled then. But for little kids, I do think that that's a really fun holiday. And, you know, you just got to enjoy them when they're little, I think, because that's one thing, you know, Mike and I are similar in a lot of regards, but the age of our kids, incredibly different. You know, (laughs) mine are four and two and yours are 19 and 17. And, you know, as even just before we did this recording, you know, Uncle Mike is rolling around on the beds with the kids, and they're just so cute. Oh, and- well, we do that at my house, too. <laughs> with your kids. <laughs> with my 19 and so, with my six-foot-tall daughter and my six-two son. We do that. We but, get, get in there in the twin bed and just but sort it's of funny wrestle. Generally speaking, I can't, like, sort of talk about, you know, the cute things that Rhea and Ravi do to people with older kids. Like, you know, for example... For Christmas, and you know, kids like silly things for Christmas. Rhea got a, a thing of post-it notes, mm-hmm. right? So now all over the house, there's several in the office right yeah, now. We're I'm, recording. I'm, I'm soaking in them, I know. She all day will make things that say, I love you, daddy. I love my daddy and stick them places, which I think is cute. And anytime I try to tell someone with like a 16-year-old dot of that, they're like, well, don't get used to it. <laughs> it all goes to hell at some point. <laughs> I don't want that. I want no. I want the post-it notes. No. When she's you know, 16 we, I, years I old. I will say I you know, I don't know if this is a totally typical story or not, but we've gone the sort of full circle, right? Like at this point, like you know, I I'm past the stage of like the kids being like nah, side eyes and rolling eyes at me all the time. Now we're, we're back to the like we all love each other and appreciate each other, which is actually really nice. There's actually like um I don't know, like a resurrection of like that sort of wholesome family dynamic, probably because we spend very little time together. <laughs> That's the key. There you go. Now so you- when we do, we're like, I love you so much. See you in about 12 hours <laughs> or three days as the case may be. Anyhow. So, well, so while well, we, while we pull ourselves out of the, the, the post holiday funk over here, you're all in March. Happy yeah, March. Yeah. So beware the Ides of March. The Ides of March. We've talked about that before too. Well, yeah. The old Julius Caesar assassination time. Yeah. And we sort of mentioned St. Patrick's Day, which everybody loves, even yeah. though nobody's Irish enough to actually <laughs> claim it as their own holiday. But uh, we're going to claim, I think, to have a pretty good month this yeah, month to kick gonna, off the year. We're definitely, well, it's not the kickoff, but again, our, of our calendar year, yes. So we've got 20 papers. Yeah, I got 20 right. papers, and then they, every month, get summarized by, by Jess, Jess and Jenny. Jenny. They're going to ultra-summarize that, and then we're going to triple T-A-L-N a little bit. And this is historical controls. That is absolutely right. And that takes us to the first abstract. Let's get there. Let's go there. Let's do it. Paper chase. Abstract number one. Defibrillation strategies for refractory V-fib. This is from Cheskis et al. from the New England Journal of Medicine. This is definitely a big one all over the blogosphere. I'm sure you've heard something about this paper by now already. So let's dive into it a little bit. 
VFib and VTAC cardiac arrest are considered to be the most treatment-responsive forms of cardiac arrest and have the highest rates of survival. However, up to half of patients don't respond to multiple defibrillation attempts and then are deemed to have refractory VFib or VTAC. And refractory VFib in patients with pre-hospital cardiac arrest actually has a very poor prognosis. Now enter this double sequential defibrillation. What this is, is referring to the use of two separate defibrillator machines. So this isn't like a shock followed by a second shock immediately after that. It's two separate machines on the same patient with two sets of pads. One set of pads usually in the anterolateral position, which is kind of where we tend to put these things generally, and the second set in the anterior posterior position. Although this position can also be anterolateral, just sort of next to the other pads. But generally speaking, we do anterolateral, anterior, posterior. Now, data on both of these techniques is largely mixed and stems from observational studies, which are prone to bias. This same group that published this paper did some pilot work showing some benefit to double sequential defibrillation. And this paper here is the full results of their trials. They'd published just the pilot work previously. So this is the DOSE VF trial, double sequential external defibrillation for refractory VFib designed to evaluate double sequential defibrillation and vector change defibrillation compared with standard defibrillation and vector change defibrillation is basically the technique of switching the defibrillation pads from the anterolateral position to the anterior posterior. Right. Didn't work the first way. Let's see if we can, you know, change we, the vector. We try missed something else. the heart. So let's try to put it in a different angle and see if we hit it this way. Got it. So this is a three group cluster randomized trial with a crossover every six months among six paramedic services in Ontario, Canada, enrolling adult patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest who remained in VFib or VTAC after three traditional anterolateral shocks. Their target sample size was 930 patients, but unfortunately, like a lot of studies we're seeing now, the trial was stopped early because of COVID, and that had to do actually with staffing limitations in the pre-hospital setting. They like said so they just didn't even have enough paramedics to be dealing with trial and some other stuff. That's how short-staffed they were. Just goes to show you the sort of the ripple effect of what happened with COVID. All patients got three standard shocks with pads in the anterolateral position and meds per ACLS protocols. The median age of enrolled patients was about 65 years. Over 80% were male and about two-thirds were bystander witnessed cardiac arrest, and just over half of them actually got bystander-initiated CPR. So they wanted 930 patients. They ended up enrolling 405 patients before it got stopped. Of those, 125 were randomized to the double sequential defibrillation arm, where a second machine was used with pads, which was activated one second after the first one. So they didn't wait and see. It was a shock with the first machine, and then one second later, a shock with the second machine. 144 were randomized to the vector change arm, where they got their three traditional, and then from then on, their shocks were delivered in the anterior-posterior position, and 136 were randomized to receive all shocks in the anterolateral position. That was the control group. They just kept going, kept doing the same thing they had done the first three times. Now, 
One thing to note is there was a high rate of protocol violations as only 107 out of 125 in the double sequential defibrillation arm actually got double sequential defibrillation. And 113 out of the 144 in the vector change arm got a vector change arm. So a lot of people got what they weren't supposed to get, but when they present the data, they present the data as an intent to treat analysis. So it was as if everybody had gotten the treatment that they were randomized to. When comparing double sequential defibrillation with standard care, they observed a significantly higher survival to hospital discharge, 30.4% versus 13.3%, the relative risk of 2.21. Higher termination of VFib, 84% versus 67%. Higher rates of ROSC, 46.4% versus 26.5%. and higher rates of survival with a good neurologic outcome, a modified Rankin score of two or less. So they really picked like, they didn't do the three or less. They did, these are really pretty minimally impaired people at that point, rate of 27.4% versus 11.2%. When comparing vector change with standard care, they observed significantly higher survival to hospital discharge, 22% versus 13%, and termination of VF, 80% versus 67%, and non-significant trends to higher ROSC, 35% versus 26%, and survival with a good neurologic outcome, 16% versus 11%. So this is a pretty well-designed, large randomized trial with a crossover, which decreases the risk of bias, which could be generated by simply having you know, higher or lower performing paramedic teams in one group. You just happen to happen super good ones in the double sequential defibrillation. And the outcome assessors were blinded to the treatment allocation. But we have to keep in mind, I think this has sort of been touted as like a very highly positive trial. And I would say, let's pump the brakes a little bit because there's a few things to be thinking about here. One is that the trial was stopped about halfway short of its target enrollment which could result in an overestimate of the treatment size, the paramedics themselves were not blinded. And I think this is important because it's possible that they worked harder on a patient getting a new treatment compared with one getting sort of more of the same, right? Where it's like, okay, we did three shocks. Unfortunately, this guy's just going to get more stuff. Hey, they got the cool new thing. Let's go. Let's like, we're doing something special. Let's do something new. Let's push a little bit harder. The authors don't actually provide time on scene, which in my mind might address this potential bias. The number of patients who survived to hospital discharge, the primary outcome, was small, only 18 in the control group. And when analyzed by treatment actually received the per-protocol analysis, although the trend favoring these two things, the double sequential defibrillation and vector change, remain, the statistical significance vanished. So that was gone. So just as another point, when I was sort of reading a little bit about this, some people have expressed concerns about doing double sequential defibrillation for fear that it might damage one of the machines. Like you do a shock and then you shock with another machine on or you do it too close to each other. Just so you know, in this trial, they didn't report any damage to the machines, but they spaced the shocks apart by one second, which they kind of emphasize in the discussion section too, saying that's important. You don't press play on both machines at the same time. Oh, you, you like the skin on fire. Second. Yeah. And then, of course, there's this downside of the potential cost over paramedics either carrying two machines 
or if we feel like, oh, this is like a life-saving therapy, the cost of getting a second paramedic unit to the scene of a VTAC arrest or something like that. So I think there's a lot of logistical barriers to actually Mm -hmm. implementing some of this stuff. And there's some methodologic statistical problems with the paper. So generally, it's probably a good idea if you've done three things and it's not working to try something else. I don't think the strength of the evidence here is quite as strong as the absolute magnitude differences of the numbers that they present. Uh, You bring up some interesting points. I mean, you know, as with most things, numbers that seem too good to be true usually are, and these seem a little too good to be true for me. And I'm trying to extrapolate this into an emergency department setting as well, where we're receiving a patient that has now had multiple rounds of failed, you know, cardioversion, and does this apply then in the ED that we should be considering going, you know, or we should be doing, not considering, but doing double sequential defibrillation. And there's reasons to be skeptical of that too, right? Like by the time you get transferred to the ER, your downtime is sufficiently long that resurrecting that person at that point may actually be harmful. So I'm not sure how much I'm willing to take this into my practice. I'm just trying to wrestle with that a little bit. Yeah, I think there's, you know, there's a few things to consider, and this is obviously a complicated issue. There have been other papers looking Mm -hmm. at double sequential defibrillation, and it seems like when it works, it sort of works on that fourth or fifth shock. By the time you get the shock six or seven, it doesn't really have any value anyways. At least that's what other papers have shown. But for me, I think this is relevant to if they do come in quick. I mean, just logically, it sort of makes sense to me. If they come in relatively quick, the paramedics were down the road, the downtime is short, they've tried a couple standard shocks you're doing a third one, you feel like for whatever reason you want to keep going, it does seem silly to me to keep doing the same thing over and over again. Where, like you said before, like, you know, they're missing the heart or something's off. It's worth, if you decide the code is worth pursuing, I would be switching my pad position at that point or adding a second machine. If you decide that the downtime has been too long, they've already gotten 15 shots and you don't really want to resuscitate this person, then just don't. Yeah. I suspect that, you know, again, I agree with that. That makes sense to a certain extent. If you're deciding like we're going to go through this, we're full core pressing, it's been short enough, let's do it, then it does make a certain amount of sense. There's at least some evidence that this, this might work. You know, of course, the, the, this is really the cynic in me, not even the skeptic. The cynic in me sees a whole new industry of defibrillators that are, have two big batteries that have, you know what I mean? And then a little a giant pad that wraps around your whole body that delivers double sequential defibrillation, like a whole new thing that now we have to outfit everybody with. And I think that this data, you know, in a crossover design that's cluster randomized, that's not that strong of a methodology compared to others. So I would be, I would pump the brakes on that wholesale change that I'm sure is, you know, afoot. But I hear what your point that if, you know, if you're dealing with a, a person who's in refractory VF in the hospital and hasn't been, you think they're still salvageable. Yeah, I guess, I guess I would, you know, first put the pads in the AP direction and then put a second machine, well, you know, shock them once that way, put a second machine on and then do a double sequential. Edit this commentary. In this large randomized crossover trial, the authors report a benefit with the use of both double sequential defibrillation and vector change defibrillation among patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and refractory VTAC or VFib compared with a control group receiving only standard anterolateral pad shocks for the duration of their resuscitation. There are some unfortunate but noteworthy limitations, including sample size concerns 
lack of blinding, and protocol violations which force us to interpret the overall results with a good deal of caution. That being said, we have to make clinical decisions based on the evidence we have now. So for me, if your patient is salvageable, I would use one of these two techniques after the first three shocks fail. Doesn't seem to cause any harm and may have benefit. Repeating the same thing over and over again just doesn't make much sense. Abstract number two, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation in the therapy of cardiogenic shock results of the ECMO-CS randomized clinical trial. This is by Ostadol et al. and it's in circulation. So extracorporeal membrane oxygenation or ECMO has been slowly emerging as a technique to bridge people through critical illness. Its utility is far from proven to date as only a small handful of RCTs and those RCTs are small, have been done, and the results have demonstrated varying success. One of the key reasons for the inconsistent results in ECMO to date is that it has been applied to all sorts of sort of circulatory collapse cases. For example, just a couple months ago, we reviewed a study looking at ECMO for hypothermic cardiac arrest patients, and that's very clearly different from those who are suffering from a massive MI and going to cardiogenic shock. And you know, in the hypothermic case, probably the main use of ECMO is that it heats you up fast. This study focuses on the utility of ECMO for patients with rapidly deteriorating circulatory status due to cardiogenic shock only. And that actually should be a good group where ECMO has some potential because we know that many people who are having STEMI or whatever, once the myocardial infarction sort of stops, the stunned myocardium will come back online and they can, you know, potentially survive. This study was a multi-centered investigator-initiated one. It was conducted solely in the Czech Republic, solely in Czech Republic. And a couple of the authors do report some conflicts of interest with the ECMO manufacturer. That is, they're on like, you know, they get received speaking fees, et cetera. But that's what it is. So what happened? Between 2014 and 2022, the authors randomized 122 patients with severe cardiogenic shock to receive either one immediate veno-arterial ECMO, so VA ECMO, or a conservative approach that discouraged but did not prohibit VA ECMO. So that's important because their protocol allowed the docs to eventually put the patient on VA ECMO if, for example, they were continuing to be very sick. And we'll get into the implications of that when we look at the uh, outcomes. The primary outcome was a composite of death, seems like a fairly good one, resuscitated circulatory arrest. So somebody who had a full-on CPR in progress, but was resuscitated, and the need for another mechanical circulatory device. So it's as important. We think of it, that's Usually you think of that like, okay, the next thing down the line would be like a LVAD, right? Some ventricular assist device. But if you were in the conservative arm, an additional device would have been VA ECMO. It was just a, like an escalation of An care. escalation of care, but could have escalated you from the conservative to the, to the intervention. Into, into intervention arm. And again, we'll get to what that means. The study was powered to detect a 50% difference in the primary outcome between the two groups. So a really big difference. The subjects were pretty well balanced between the groups, 74% men, mean age was 66. They were very sick. 
the systolic blood pressure on average was 85, and they were all on pressors, many of them on multiple pressors to get them up to, to 85. So they were on multiple pressors to get them into that hypotensive state. 75% of them were already mechanically ventilated. And the etiology of their cardiogenic shock was most of the time STEMI, about 55% of the time, 12% of the time it was NSTEMI, and about a quarter of the time it was decompensated CHF, just bad CHF that was getting worse. So what did they find? The composite endpoint occurred 64% of the time in the immediate VA ECMO group and 71% in the conservative group. So that looks maybe like a hint of efficacy, but this was not statistically significant. So 64 versus 71. All cause mortality was same, same. 50% in the ECMO group versus 50% in the conservative group. So what accounts for the sort of minimal difference in the primary outcome, but not one in the all-cause mortality? Well, that's because there was this big crossover. And 39% of the conservative group eventually crossed over to the ECMO group because they had continued deterioration in their clinical course. So this high proportion of crossover makes us, you know, we really need to think carefully about what this study is really finding. On the one hand, it may artificially increase the primary endpoint in the conservative group, right? So that is, you know, if you have a patient that's really sick, but ultimately they're destined to not die because they're just not that sick. In the VA ECMO group, they would just count as a survival, right? But in the conservative group, because they stay sick for a while, they would flip over and get VA ECMO, and then they would look like a, you know, a failure, right? Because they failed the conservative approach. So that would artificially make it look like VA ECMO was better than the conservative approach. I have two questions. Yes. I don't want to interrupt your flow. No, no, but go ahead. The That's first fine. is, did they give the time window for the people who flipped over, like, you know, how long they got that conservative approach? Like, was it, you know, half a day or was it like 10 minutes because they were yeah. all on the, the take? You no, know? no, That's no, my no, first no. question. And yeah. my second question is, is it worth then sort of looking at a per protocol analysis of the data or does that have no value here? Yeah. So to answer both of those questions, they did provide both of those data. And they said that in the timing, I don't have it right in front of me, but it was a number of hours. I think it was like on average 12 to 24 hours So it wasn't a later. fake like control arm no. where they just and, gave everybody ECMO yeah. 10 and, seconds and we'll, later. We'll go into that in just a second, actually. So that's true. The other piece on the per protocol, it looked pretty similar. The findings looked pretty similar, but it's hard then because you've got people who are varying, varying different states of decompensation. So my point here is that with this crossover, that could artificially make it look more different than they actually are, right? Because the conservative group that gets accelerated to VA ECMO counts as a negative, whereas the one that just stuck on VA ECMO counts as a positive. But usually crossover tends to bias towards the null because, like you said, if you just crossed over everybody immediately, it essentially becomes a study of VA ECMO versus VA ECMO. So of course it's a, a negative and that artificially makes the effective VA ECMO smaller. So how do you balance that in this study? And I don't have an answer to that. I don't. I, I think that you know this remains, because of this high level of crossover, an open question. The final point, going back to your point about like the group that you know was per protocol, it's still only 122 patients total, right? So to their credit, they don't do a lot of slicing of the data because they just don't have the power to do it and it ends up being even more muddy. So 
this still leaves the door open for some possibility that, that VA ECMO used early for you know, deteriorating circulatory collapse and cardiogenic shock is useful. There are currently three trials going on right now, most of them, and they have cool names. Like one's called like Euroshock, which is like, you know, sounds like a cool thing that you should watch on TV or something I just, like that. I just got an invitation to participate in a trial called Windsurfer. And I forgot, I forgot what that is, but, but we should do I want to participate. <laughs> so this story is just being, you know, worked out with these other three trials. They'll be coming in the next several years. And at least one of them is VA ECMO and cardiogenic shock versus nothing. And they don't allow the crossover. I don't know how they ethically do that. I'm not sure, but they don't allow a crossover. So this story is being written. You know, the good news is that I feel like VA ECMO and ECMO in general got a lot of popularity and all these ECMO centers started and everything. And there just really hasn't been any any evidence. And I'm just glad that it's happening, that people are doing these trials and such to help us understand if it's really worth the investment. Because it's no joke to have an ECMO team and all that can, that can respond either to the ICU or to the emergency department. And so, you know, I'm still a hold the phone on, on the pump the brakes on the ECMO thing until there's more evidence. But at least now I'm cautiously optimistic that that evidence is coming. Editor's commentary. This is a limited randomized controlled trial of VA ECMO versus conservative approach for patients with refractory cardiogenic shock. The results fail to show any convincing evidence of benefit for ECMO in this context, but methodologic limitations leave the door open for a more modest treatment effect that could not be detected using this study design. Clinical practice. Abstract number three. Comparison of years and adjust unlikely D-dimer testing for pulmonary embolism in the ED. This is by DeWitt et al from the Annals of Emergency Medicine. Now, there have been several rules and combination of different rules developed to help us become better at diagnosing PE in the emergency department. Most of these things are focused on not only who should be tested or who should be worked up for PE, but also on sort of improving the specificity of D-dimer testing, particularly in those where the D-dimer results in the 500 to the 1,000 nanogram per milliliter range. As Wells is seldom used at this day and age, maybe in part due to its complexity, like, you know, six, seven questions, whatever it is, the years rule has become more popular, which basically raises the D-dimer cut point to 1,000 if a patient has no years criteria. And there's only three questions. Is PE your most likely diagnosis? Are there clinical signs of a DVT, and does the patient have hemoptysis? And last month, we talked about the hemoptysis one. You could probably drop that one because it doesn't matter. Right. <laughs> so we're, we keep whittling it down, right? And that's basically what the authors want to do here, as they perform a study with the dual purpose of externally validating the year's rule, as well as testing their own, even simpler rule, called the adjust unlikely rule. Adjust unlikely has just one question, which is, is PE your most likely diagnosis? So they one-up you. They okay. take away the hemoptysis and they take away the DVT, the clinical signs of a DVT. And if the answer is yes, this is where for me it gets like a little weird, this paper. If the answer is yes, I do think PE is the most likely diagnosis, then they use a cut point of 500 for everybody. And now that's a little weird because that could be a high-risk person still. That could be. In so, theory, 
Is that correct? I'll get to that. But basically, this isn't one of those where they set a protocol and sort of follow it. Everybody in this sample who had a D-dimer greater than 500 got imaging or was supposed to get imaging. That was just their protocol. I see. We'll get to that in a second. Okay. Pause on that question. We'll do. So, and if the answer was no, PE is not the most likely diagnosis, then they used an age-adjusted cut point in the validation, their internal validation of their rule. Data was prospectively collected in a consecutive sample of patients being worked up for PE from two EDs in Hamilton, Canada. This goes to your point. Physicians were expected to use a newly developed standardized order set for PE, which included a D-dimer and then flip to imaging if the result was greater than 500. So they weren't using age-adjusted as a baseline. Everybody over 500 ended up was supposed to get imaging. Physicians were asked to answer all three years questions before the D-dimer was ordered to minimize bias, like some incorporation bias of the D-dimer result. Patients were then followed for 30 days in the electronic medical record of all three local hospitals but no in-person or phone follow-up was conducted. Of just under 2,000 patients tested for PE, years items were recorded on about 90% of them, so 1,700 patients. An additional 58 had to be excluded as they were repeat visits for they had like sort of a complicated reason for why those were excluded. Of note, the PE rate was 13.6% in excluded patients compared with 8% in included patients. Of the patients who were determined to not have a PE at the index visit, none of them were found to have a PE within their 30-day follow-up, at least via the EMR search that they conducted. The year's sensitivity for PE diagnosis was 92.6%, and specificity was 45%. That's a little bit lower than everything else we have seen the published The sensitivity on years. part. The sensitivity. The specificity is probably about on par, I think. It's still, they're both a little bit off, yeah. actually. Huh. Their adjust unlikely sensitivity was 100%, with a specificity of 32%. The post-test probability of PE in the group of patients with a PE excluded by a D-dimer between 500 and their age-adjusted limit. So that's like the gray area, right? Like if, you know, we're trying to raise that cut point from 500 was 2.8% for years and 0% for the adjust unlikely. I mean, zero, you know, they missed none in the whole sample. They obviously missed none in that little cohort. Although not stated explicitly in the text, if you had followed years and adjust unlikely to guide testing, Mm-hmm. 715 patients, at least by my read, would not have warranted testing by years, and of these, there would have been 10 missed PEs. And 508 would not have warranted testing by a just unlikely, and of those, there'd be zero missed PEs because they didn't miss any. So you get a more modest reduction in imaging with a just unlikely, but you don't miss any PEs. The author spent a big chunk of their discussion trying to explain why their calculated sensitivity of years was so much lower than in other published studies on the topic. It's usually upwards of 98%, mm-hmm. the sensitivity. That's what we know about years. And they don't have a perfect reason, right? They talk about it a lot and they're like, I just don't know why it was closer to 90%. 
my gut feeling is they're probably just diagnosing less severe cases, right? Because they are imaging everybody mm -hmm. with a D-dimer greater than 500. So maybe they're just catching less severe cases, but I don't know. The fact that the PE rate was also much higher in excluded patients introduces the possibility of some spectrum bias in their sample. At the end, I think what they are trying to do here is just propose another way to raise your cut point for a positive D-dimer. But like all rule sets, we need to wait for external validation before even thinking about putting this one into use, particularly because the methodology makes the interpretation of this one a little bit weird and a little bit funky. Editor's commentary. In this prospective cohort study, the authors perform a prospective validation of the year's rule for PE and find it to be slightly less sensitive than reported in other studies for unclear reasons. In part two, they test out their own new rule with only one question to guide D-dimer cut point, which is, is PE your most likely diagnosis, and found it to be more sensitive, but with a more modest reduction in imaging. At the end of the day, I definitely support all efforts to find a way to consider more D-dimer tests on the margin to be negative tests, but this one definitely needs much more external validation before using it at the bedside. Abstract number four, impact of intravenous calcium with diltiazem for atrial fibrillation or flutter in the emergency department by Rossi et al., American Journal of Emergency Medicine. And I swore last month, if you'll recall, I would not do another retrospective study of diltiazem versus metoprolol for AFib for two years. And I'm sticking to my guns on that one. However, the AFib lobby found a loophole. What if monotherapy with diltiazem was co-administered with calcium there's no metoprolol. So it's diltiazem versus diltiazem versus calcium. And I didn't have a stance on that. Right. So, you just said no beta blocker, calcium channel blocker right. in the same paper. And they just took out the beta they blocker. They just took it out. And said, here you go, Mike Machine. Yeah. And I'm EMA like, number four. They really got me on that one. So over the years, I've occasionally run into someone. And I, tell me if you've had this, Sanjay, where someone says, hey, you know, this guy's maybe like marginal hypotensive with AFib rapid response. Should we give him IV calcium before we give him diltiazem? Have you ever had somebody ask you that Absolutely. question? Absolutely. Happens, I don't know, it seems at random and every six, oh, 10 months, somebody will say something like my, that. My gut feeling is that, because this is an open question. Yeah. People talk about it a lot. I don't think we have amazing data. I'm not sure if we're going to after the conclusion of this paper. Spoiler alert, no. But something tells me that when it pops up in sort of the foam world or yeah. something, people listen. And they're like, hey, are we supposed to be doing this? And then there's some enthusiasm garner around it for a few minutes, and then it goes away. And then it goes away. And then something else pops up. Until it pops up, yeah. Another, a new shiny light. Right. So the basic idea is that co-administration of calcium might allow for the cardiac effects of diltiazem to go on as normal, but somehow protect the smooth muscle relaxation effects that occur in the peripheral blood vessels that may cause hypotension. The pathopharmacology of why there would be some differential effect on cardiac myocytes versus smooth muscle cells is totally unclear. And this study, if memory serves, is done by like 10 pharmacologists, and they do not propose a mechanism for that. They're just like, mm, you know, whatever, maybe it happens. Okay. So basically, this is a retrospective chart review conducted at a series of affiliated hospitals in Florida. They identified patients with rapid response AFib 
who were treated with diltiazem monotherapy. So they, they heard my admonition in the beginning. Don't give me no dilt versus metoprolol. They found people who only got diltiazem. And then they found those who either got calcium within 60 minutes, basically, of the you know, infusion of diltiazem versus those that either never got calcium or got it much later than that. The primary outcome of interest was change in systolic blood pressure at one hour post-infusion with the theory being that the calcium group would have a lower change in blood pressure. Other outcomes included the change in heart rate, which of course would be relevant, and the time to rate control. The chart review methods are poor, but really the statistical methods are even more problematic and what make it really hard to interpret the study. They end up with about 260 subjects, about 200 had diltiazem monotherapy and 60 who had diltiazem and calcium. The mean age was the same between the two groups, 73 years old, as was the initial heart rate. So that's good, right? It was 144 in both groups. However, everything else was different between the two groups, including the serum calcium levels, which were lower in the group that got calcium. So maybe they're just getting calcium because someone thought they needed calcium because they had hypocalcemia. And probably more importantly, the systolic blood pressure was much lower in the group that got calcium, 109 versus 123. And maybe even most important, probably most important, is that the initial dose of diltiazem was 15 milligrams per deciliter in the monotherapy group and only 10 milligrams per deciliter in the IV calcium group. So it gave them a lower dose. But none of that is surprising, right? Because this isn't a trial. This is observational but any, data. But they don't make any adjustment for That's, it okay. at all. That's where I was going. Right. So the authors make no attempt to adjust for these baseline differences in either systolic blood pressure or So they just present calcium. the raw data. Raw data. Ah. Now, the heart rate dropped by 33 beats per minute in both groups, okay? And systolic blood pressure dropped basically equally between the two groups. Two millimeters of mercury in the monotherapy group versus 1.5 millimeters of mercury in the dual therapy or the calcium plus diltiazem group. There were a lot of issues with the paper. Most of it biased in favor of finding a protective effect of calcium, right? They had a lower dose of, of diltiazem administered, and yet still the results show that there was no significant change in blood pressure between the two groups. So despite this bias favoring a protective effect of calcium, there really, in this study, is no evidence that calcium co-administration blunts the hypotensive effect of diltiazem. So I guess that's good news, or, you know, or it sort of like partially bursts the bubble of calcium might help stop hypotension in patients with AFib and rapid response. But the methodology here is just really suspect, again, because of the statistical lack of adjustment, but also the chart review methods that are just poor. So I'm reinstituting my two-year policy. <laughs> now, two years, no further review of retrospective studies looking at DILT, maybe versus anything. <laughs> maybe that's where I need to go. Until we get some prospective stuff, maybe we just need to put a, a full-on uh, moratorium on this. Please note, this is not an actual guarantee. Edit this commentary. This retrospective study examined the effect of co-administration of diltiazem and calcium for the treatment of rapid response AFib, with the theory being that it could prevent some of the hypotension associated with diltiazem. The findings provide no evidence that that is true. Abstract number five, the use of dexmedetomidine in the ED, a systematic review, 
This is by Baumgartner et al. from Academic Emergency Medicine. The use of sedatives and anxiolytics are essentially becoming a part of everyday emergency practice, and the list of medication options to do those things is pretty wide, ranging from Haldol to ketamine to benzodiazepines and propofol. Each one of these has its own unique set of pros and cons that must be evaluated prior to each use, sort of on a case-by-case basis. Dexmedetomidine, which they call in this paper Dex, although I'll probably do that, although I usually think of uh, dexamethasone. dexamethasone when I say Dex, but it's hard to say Dexmedetomidine over and over again, so Dex. I'd call it DMED. For the courses of the next five or six minutes is Dexmedetomidine. Change your brain. Is a centrally acting alpha-2 agonist which induces sedation by suppressing the release of excitatory neurotransmitters and basically terminating propagation of pain signals. Although its use in the ICU and some other places in the House of Medicine is definitely expanding with a specific interest in septic patients and those with severe alcohol withdrawal, there's been, to my knowledge, limited research on the use of DEX in the ED. Potential uses in the ED include things like procedural sedation, sedation of agitated, non-intubated patients, sedation to facilitate radiologic imaging in pediatric patients, and facilitation of the use of non-invasive positive pressure ventilation and invasive positive pressure ventilation, but some experts are largely questioning its safety compared to other agents. So in this paper, the authors perform a systematic review of studies in the ED using DEX for any indication, and to my surprise, they identified 35 studies for review, including 11 randomized controlled trials, 13 cohort studies, and 11 case series or case reports describing its use in about 900 patients, 35 of whom were intubated. So that's a lot more studies and a lot more patients than I knew were actually had been done on this topic. Among the randomized controlled trials, indications for dexmedetomidine included procedural sedation and analgesia, four studies, Prevention of ketamine-associated recovery agitation, two studies. Sedation to facilitate radiologic imaging, two studies. And other indications, three studies. Non-randomized controlled trials had a pretty similar mixed bag of indications that included procedural sedation and analgesia, six studies. Undifferentiated ED sedation of agitated patients, four studies. And sedation to facilitate radiologic imaging, four studies. Data pooling and meta-analysis was not possible due to significant heterogeneity in interventions, comparators, indications, and outcomes recorded, as well as those that they were designed to evaluate. So this turns into a systematic review with no meta-analysis. Yes, and they, but they call it a systematic review. They don't say a ah, systematic review and meta-analysis. Sneaky, so sneaky. They have a very idea. accurate title, I these didn't authors. realize that. Okay. The strength of evidence for all indications was modest. Yep with the strongest being as a tool for facilitating medical imaging. And this is what I found most interesting. It was most often used intranasally, which I didn't, I didn't even, even know. I had no idea. I thought this was a I... continuous infusion. Nope. They used it intranasally. Is it continuous intranasal? It's like a, it's it was like not, a it was misted a, dex. It was just they put the dose in a nebulizer and gave it to patients. That's what they did. I didn't even know you could do that. And the weakest evidence was actually for sedation of agitated patients because that's like sort of like the, you know, the you give Haldol and benzodiazepines, could you be using some dexmedetomidine instead? At least on the pretty weak evidence we have, that was the weakest. 
although overall infrequent and essentially never requiring significant intervention, adverse events included hypotension, bradycardia, and respiratory depression when administered with other agents. The rates of all adverse events were higher when given IV, so either in the bolus or in the drip, like Mike was describing, or when larger doses were used. The authors point out that many of the included studies are of moderate to poor methodologic quality or suffer from pretty significant design flaws that limit validity, applicability, and generalizability. So you're saying that we, we have, this is real clear answer. Yeah, I, th- <laughs> I think the authors actually do a nice job. The, the discussion section is well written. They don't overstate what they found at all. They say the paper is basically a call to arms of going, course. hey, this is getting really popular. Surprisingly, we have 35 studies in the ED and they kind of suck. Yeah. You know, if we want to start using this, we have to think about this from a serious research perspective, design some trials and figure out the answers to these questions. So I think their analysis of the data so far, even those 35 papers, is spot on. Editor's commentary. In this well-done systematic review on dexmedetomidine use in the ED, the authors conclude that although the theoretical uses are numerous and it is gaining popularity across the house of medicine, the evidence base for use in the emergency department is weak and more, better trials are needed. This paper is a good summary of the topic if you are interested in bringing dexmedetomidine to your emergency department or if you are interested in setting up a trial and introduced me to some indications and routes I was not aware of. For example, sedation for pediatric imaging via intranasal or even sublingual administration. Abstract number six. Outcomes in ED patients with nonspecific ECG findings and low high-sensitivity troponin. This is by Al Shaikh et al., and this is in the Journal of the American College of Emergency Physicians, OPEN. So this is another study looking at the prognostic capacity of high-sensitivity troponin assays. By now, I think we're starting to get, if this isn't already in your lab, we're all getting used to the idea that a high-sensitivity troponin is really, really good, if negative, at excluding MI. Now, whether that should be, you know, a single negative high-sensitivity troponin or one at a zero and one-hour protocol or a zero and 30-minute protocol, that's a little bit up in the air. These authors, though, wanted to look at how ECG findings interact with negative troponins. So that is, if the ECG shows something nonspecific, ST depressions or T-wave inversions, is it still safe to rely on a negative, totally negative, high-sensitivity troponin result. The study itself is a secondary analysis of a prospective registry collected by Siemens as part of their FDA submission for approval of their version of the high-sensitivity analyzer in the United States. The parent study enrolled patients greater than 22 years of age from 29 U.S. emergency departments who presented with chest pain, shortness of breath, or some other potentially anginal equivalent symptom. Blood was drawn at, you know, arrival one, three, six hours. ECGs were obtained and coded as initially as STEMI or not STEMI. STEMI cases were excluded because, you know, high-sensitivity troponin levels don't have any role to play in the management of those cases. Non-specific ECGs included almost everything else. 
everything except for like SVT, you know, things like that that were a specific kind of finding. So T-wave inversions were included in the non-specific ECGs. Left bundle branch was included in the non-specific ECGs, as was ST segment depressions. All of the patients were followed up clinically for a minimum of 30 days to determine if they experienced a primary outcome, which was a major adverse cardiac event, a MACE, which by now I think we're starting to get familiar with. That's like, you know, you had an MI, you had a CHF exacerbation, or you had some kind of revascularization procedure within those 30 days. The original data collection here took place between 2015 and 2016. So in this study, so that was the parent, in this study, the patients were divided into those who had an initial high-sensitivity troponin that was negative or below the level of quantitation. Quantitation? That sounds like a word, right? Sounds like a made-up word. <laughs> Quantitativeness. Quantitativeness. Either Quantitativeness. Ma- Quantitativeness is, is, I think that is the, the, the Greek, <laughs> it's yeah. the Latin. So negative high-sensitivity troponin versus positive high-sensitivity troponin but positive in this context just meant it was detectable. It didn't mean like it was above the 36 nanograms per liter or anything like that. So they were then further subdivided into those with normal ECGs versus those with non-specific ECG findings. The incidence of major adverse cardiac events was compared between the groups. And in this particular assay had a detection limit of 2.5 nanograms per deciliter, which is very, very low. So there were 1,300 people who met study criteria. Overall, the 30-day MACE rate was very low at only 5%. The authors sliced this data in a bunch of different ways, and frankly, some of it's kind of hard to intuit. So I'm just going to pull out what I think is most useful. For me, the most compelling analysis is the look at patients who had a negative high-sensitive troponin stratified by whether their ECG was normal or not. In that analysis, there were 248 patients with normal troponin and normal ECGs. Okay, so I think we can all agree you have a normal ECG and a normal negative, negative high sensitivity troponin, you'd probably go home, right? The incidence of MACE in that group was just about 4%. So 4% of them ended up needing a revascularization, but that's probably about as low as you can get. You got normal ECG, normal high sensitivity troponin. That just means that, you know, some people need to get a coronary. Yeah, well, I mean, you're working them up for cardiac disease right. for some, some reason, right? Yeah. Some of them are going to have it. That's they, okay. And, and then you don't all, expect it to be zero. Right. And they were all revascularizations. No one walked home and dro- dropped dead or anything like that. Okay. So to me, that represents the floor, right? So what about those with negative high sensitivity troponins and nonspecific ECG changes? Okay. The proportion with MACE was 3%. So it was actually lower. You know, no statistic, not statistically different. We'll call it the same. We'll call it same, same, but at least it wasn't higher. So this argues that nonspecific ECG findings do not, you know, suggest a higher risk and do not mandate that we do anything more with patients who otherwise have a negative high sensitivity troponin test. So can we just say, forget the ECG altogether? <laughs> you know, now, obviously still need it for STEMI and move on regardless. Truthfully, I think we're mostly headed in that direction, but this study can't get us that far, particularly because there were very few people in the nonspecific ECG category who had ugly-looking ECGs, right? Like really bad ST-segment depressions. They were all T-wave inversions, T-wave flattenings, and stuff like that. So, you know, 
if I see somebody that has a really terrible looking ECG, I think we're still off book. We don't know what the right answer to that is. But if it's a non-specific ECG finding that you're like, I don't know, yeah, he's got a flip T wave compared to an ECG from two years ago or something like that. I think this is more evidence that we can rely on the negative high sensitivity troponin to sort of guide the care of that patient. In addition to obviously the, you know, whatever historical events might be, you know, compelling, but we don't need to flip out about that and worry that this flip T wave is some harbinger of bad news compared to, you know, a relatively normal ECG. Editor's commentary. This is a secondary analysis of prospective data collected during the FDA application for Siemens high sensitivity troponin assay. The data show that among patients with negative high sensitivity troponins, the major adverse cardiac event rate was very low and similar between those who had normal ECGs and those who had non-specific ECG findings. At a minimum, this suggests that ECGs such as T-wave inversions should not weigh heavily in the decision to admit or further risk stratify patients with otherwise negative high-sensitivity troponin values. Abstract number seven, the role of ultrasound in an implantable tissue larynx model during a simulated front-of-neck access scenario, a randomized simulation study, despite Zasso et al. in the Canadian Journal of Emergency Medicine. Trichothyrotomy is a very stressful procedure, usually performed when physicians cannot intubate or adequately ventilate a patient or some other factor contributes to a very difficult airway, just can't get the tube. This procedure has become rarer and rarer as physicians have gained experience with airway adjuncts and adopted more technologically advanced tools for intubation but the infrequency of performing the procedure has the potential to then increase stress rates even further in a situation when you actually have to do it. I did about 20 cranks my first year as an attending. Mike is not very good at intubating. But there was a a whole logic and reason where when I was working in Antelope Valley, and I have done like one in the last 20 years. Yeah, I have done, as as an attending at USC, I think I've done two. Yeah, but, so, you know, so and I've been there almost twenty years now. Yeah. So that it's very rare, even at a place where, and we're we, a trauma center, massive right. trauma center, and even at, with us, we probably do like three or four a year total. Very unusual. I mean, the whole department. And as the procedure is generally a landmark-driven procedure, it has been suggested that ultrasound might have value in patients with difficult-to-palpate airway anatomy or morbid obesity. And generally speaking, I'm a big fan of ultrasound for procedures. I yep. think that's where it has like a ton of value. You know, it changed the way we do IJs and I like it. For stuff you can't see with your naked eye, you know, for procedural based stuff, I'm, yeah, I'm with you. I, mm-hmm. I, so I really like it. The authors of this study look at the impact of ultrasound on emergent crike in a simulated model with a primary outcome, well, strange, of vertical incision size. That's what they were looking at, was how big you had to make the cut. Not how long it took or any of that kind of stuff. Those are all secondary outcomes that they go into. So emergency medicine and anesthesia residents received basically a one-hour teaching session on airway ultrasound, how to do it, how to look for the landmarks, and on the scalpel bougie tube technique. So they are using that put in the bougie when they do the crike technique, which we've covered on another EMA. And then basically we're asked to perform a cricothyrotomy on a model within one week of receiving that session. All of these sessions were videotaped and participants were randomized to either ultrasound 21 or landmark only 21. In terms of the primary outcome, 
the vertical incision was smaller in the ultrasound group, 35 versus 65 millimeters. However, wait, 35 versus 65 millimeters, 65 millimeters? Yeah. That's 6.5 centimeters. Mike is a math. Hey, quick question. That's a Quick question. 40 millimeters. How many centimeters? I can't do that. Yeah. I have to divide. I need a, uh, the exponents. That's four times 10 to the one. Yeah. Carry <laughs> no, the but, two. Yeah. But wait a minute. But that's a really big incision. 65. Well, these, 6. Are, 5 these are models. These are porcine models. I don't know. Are they like bigger than normal? The, I have no idea. <laughs> okay. So a giant porcine. Let's models. move past it. Okay, You're sorry. fixating on something that's not important. However, success rates were about the same across the two groups. 52% in the ultrasound group versus 66% in the landmark group. Statistically, those are the same. And time was much longer in the ultrasound group. 200 seconds versus 93 seconds. So this is a small study. Limited 200 versus, I want to emphasize that too, because that's meaningful took, difference Took there. over twice as long. Yeah, and it's like over a minute. That's like, what, that's two minutes, right? That's two, two extra minutes. Two extra minutes with no airway. That's not so, good. This is a small study limited by the fact that it's a porcine-based simulation model, not a human neck. And I have no idea how that impacts difficulty. Like you said, the length needed and stuff, I don't know. There was no bleeding component, right? It's not like these, the blood gushing out of the neck as soon as... You, some models actually do simulate that. They, yeah, there we is a way... We to, saw one you know, where they infused yeah. like all sorts of blood and so fluid. We'll kind of pour, they didn't do that here. And although it was collected... There's a lack of data provided on the participants themselves and how they might have differed in terms of their previous cricothyrotomy experience or ultrasound experience, right? If these were like all anesthesia residents in one group and EM residents in another group. But that's just me being a little bit nitpicky. They do end up concluding, even though these are like ultrasound people, correctly, that their data do not support the use of real-time ultrasound when performing a cric. They do say in the discussion section, hey, we're not saying throw out its value completely. There is previous data suggesting it might have value for a pre-procedure mark if you have time. And we've covered another paper that said that can change too if the if patient's sitting, sitting up, up or down, and then laying yeah, down. But yeah. if the patient's already laying down and you're doing the airway and you're thinking about, oh, this may head toward a crike, I think what they're saying is if you want to use the ultrasound, use it before you start the procedure. Don't do it in real time because it's just yeah. going to make the whole thing longer and not actually increase your success rate. Edit this commentary. In this randomized porcine model study, the use of ultrasound during a cricothyrotomy did not increase success rate, but did significantly increase procedure time when using the scalpel bougie tube technique among resident physicians. They conclude correctly. It should not be used in real time during the procedure, but remind us it might have a value to pre-mark the membrane in advance if you have time. Abstract number eight, intensive blood pressure control after endovascular thrombectomy for acute ischemic stroke, Enchanted 2 slash MT, a multi-sontra open-label blinded endpoint randomized controlled trial by Yang et al. in The Lancet. That's a mouthful of a title. It is. It is. And it's actually a really big, very important study, but of limited value to the ED. So I'm kind of going to go over it fast, but I still like it. So the idea is that 
Neurologists and intensivists love to mess with and normalize blood pressure. And messing with it in acute stroke is just so much fun, right? We love giving little pushes so we can get it low enough so you can give TPA and all this kind of stuff. The problem with messing with blood pressure in acute stroke is that it produces bad outcomes. Time and again, trials of lowering blood pressure in hypertensive stroke patients to a more normal range to like less than, you know, 140 to, or 120 causes worse outcomes than letting the blood pressure ride at 140 to 180 millimeters mercury. However, recently, the pendulum has started to swing back towards, hey, maybe we should manipulate this, particularly in patients who've had successful endovascular therapy, okay? And the reason for that is there's three sort of reasons for that. One is purely theoretic, and it's been the theory all along, which is that like high blood pressure in this context of a damaged brain increases the risk of hemorrhage because it's just the pressure phenomena, right? It's leaky capillaries, too much blood pressure, they're going to bleed. So that's theoretic. The other two are not theoretic. The first one is that, well, I guess one of them is still theoretic. But the other one is that there have been observational studies that have plainly shown patients post-endovascular therapy who remain hypertensive have worse outcomes than those who don't. But that's observational data. And then the other part of it is that there's no reason that they should need hypertensive states, right? The reason that it's theorized that, well, you can't, you can't mess with their blood pressure is they've got a clot in there, and so you need more blood pressure to push the blood through that. But once you've sucked out the clot and you've got widely patent arteries, you no longer need that. So you should be able to tolerate lower blood pressures. All that making sense? So that's the theory. So that, you know, this sets up the need for a trial. This was uh, a trial of patients who underwent successful endovascular therapy for acute stroke and who remained hypertensive. It was done in an open-labeled manner in 44 centers in China. And again, eligible subjects had to have a blood pressure over 140 three hours after successful reperfusion for acute stroke. They were randomized to a target of less than 120 or a target of let it ride between 140 and 180. If it was over 180, they brought them down. Everybody was brought down. And the goal was for those blood pressure targets to be hit within an hour. The primary outcome was functional status on the MRS at 90 days. And then there was secondary stuff like death, et cetera. This is amazing. Between July 2020 and March 2022, July 2020, March 2022. So that's like peak COVID, right? 821 patients were enrolled and randomized. So they didn't stop doing trials in China during that time. Mean age was 66 years old. 64% had hypertension and the mean stroke score was 15. So pretty bad strokes. The likelihood of poor functional outcome was significantly higher in the intensive blood pressure management group than the conservative group with an odds ratio of 1.4. So 40% more likely to have a bad outcome if you tried to lower the blood pressure to less than 120, as opposed to just lazily letting it ride at 140 to 180. Put it in another perspective, the probability of having a modified Rankin scale of greater than or equal to three, so a terrible outcome, was 50% or 52% in the intensive group and 39 in the conservative group, a number needed to harm of seven. Do not do this. There are probably a few unanswered questions, but this is pretty damning and for the one millionth time highlights the difference between association and causation. 
elevated blood pressure is associated with poor outcomes and strokes. It's just that elevated blood pressure does not cause poor outcomes and strokes. However, efforts to control blood pressure in this context do actually cause clinical harm. Editor's commentary. This large trial of stroke patients with hypertension post-successful cerebral revascularization demonstrates fairly conclusively that maintaining a systolic blood pressure less than 120 causes harm compared with maintaining a target of 140 to 180 millimeters of mercury. Abstract number nine, characteristics and outcomes of 360 consecutive COVID-19 patients discharged from the ED with supplemental oxygen is by Dr. Sophie Turp et al. from Annals of Emergency Medicine. And by way of full disclosure, this is one of our papers. Mike and I were authors on this paper, yep. um, but I think we'll do our best to provide an unbiased review. Mm, I don't particularly care to. <laughs> so traditionally- You're only going to listen to one article this calendar year. This it's isn't- I Probably think, not it, obviously, but cool. Obviously, we are biased. I think this is an interesting paper. Uh, teaches a little something about sort of the way we can make a difference in emergency medicine. So- Traditionally, when you see a patient with a new requirement for supplemental oxygen, the disposition is pretty simple, pretty straightforward. You admit the patient. In 2020, when the COVID pandemic hit, hospital beds quickly became in short supply, and the response at our Los Angeles County Department of Health Services introduced an expected practice of which we recommended discharge of emergency department patients with COVID-19 requiring up to three liters per minute of supplemental oxygen with return precautions, pulse oximeters, supplemental O2, and a telehealth follow-up. This was a pretty novel practice to send them home directly from the ED. So it wasn't send them to OBS and let the medicine team deal with it or admit them and they stay for less than 24 hours and go home. It was straight home from the emergency department. The goal of this investigation was basically to report the characteristics and clinical outcomes of patients who were discharged as part of this program between April 2020 and March 2021. This is not a consecutive sample of hypoxic patients as referral into the program was left up to the treating provider, but it is a consecutive sample of patients who were enrolled in the program. So it was all of them who were enrolled over that one-year period. Eligibility criteria were oxygen requirement of between one and three liters per minute. You had to be comfortable at rest and with minimal exertion had to have a heart rate less than 110, a respiratory rate less than 22, and no other medical issues that would require admission. So it wasn't like, you know, you came in with COVID and you had like a nasty cellulitis of your leg and you're supposed to be admitted for that, but we sent you home anyways. You really had to be just that oxygen requirement. But they were allowed to have a lot of comorbidities. They were allowed to have comorbidities. We didn't exclude people just because they had, you know, diabetes or bad lung disease or cancer, although it was left up to the treating physician. So functionally, some of those may have been excluded. This was a structured chart review, explicit, of all medical records from across our Los Angeles County Department of Health system, with a 10% of the charts being reviewed by multiple investigators to ensure reliable data capture. The median age of the cohort was 51 years old, 61% were male, 89% 89% Hispanic, about a third had diabetes, a third had hypertension, and 40% had obesity. Among the 360 patients with COVID-19 discharged from the ED with supplemental oxygen, 
30-day survival was 97.5%, and 30-day survival without an unscheduled admission was 81.1%. There were 12 patients lost to follow-up of this cohort, and in a sensitivity analysis incorporating basically a worst-case scenario for all of them, yields 30-day survival of 95.5% and a 30-day survival without unscheduled admission of 78.9%. Survival and readmission rates held similar when the samples restricted to patients with the lowest recorded oxygen saturation in the ED of less than 90. So that's just to say these weren't all super, super minor sort of borderline cases who maybe would have gotten better and gone home anyways. Even when we looked at the sicker part of the group, at least as defined by a little bit more hypoxia, the survival rates were the same. Now, there are limitations on this paper, including the potential limitation of generalizability, right? This is one patient population, one system. Data was collected retrospectively, even though we did try to follow best practices for observational studies. And it's possible that patients received care outside of our system, which would have been missed because we could only sort of look at the three hospitals within our system. For me, The most salient take-home from this effort, and the main reason for including it, was to point out just how quickly it was set up and implemented. You didn't miss here at the beginning. The first patient in this program was sent home in April 2020, just weeks after the system started to feel the stress. And for any of you who have ever worked or been around our Los Angeles County public health system, The fact that we got anything pushed through in a few weeks is really miraculous, particularly as important as this. And I think it's kind of, we generally feel, as Mike and I both work there, that if we could do it here, you certainly could probably do it wherever you are working. And I think that this effort can serve as a model for similar efforts, maybe even for other medical conditions, which can be used to prevent hospitalizations during times when inpatient capacity is severely limited. Editor's commentary. In this study, we report on safety of a program set up at our local Los Angeles healthcare system where 360 COVID-19 patients with new supplemental oxygen requirements who would be admitted at most hospitals were actually discharged directly from the emergency department with home oxygen and a telehealth follow-up system. The first patient in this program was sent home in April 2020 And I believe this program can serve as a motivation and as a model for setting up similar programs for a variety of conditions that would normally require admission, particularly when inpatient capacity is limited. Abstract number 10, Duration of Clinical Symptoms in Children with Acute Respiratory Infection. This is by Palan et al. in Acta Pediatrica out of Oslo, Norway, which as an aside, I've been watching this Netflix show called Home for Christmas, which is set in Norway, and it's kind of an interesting sort of, have you heard of this thing? It's the story of a nurse in Norway going around doing normal Norwegian stuff, falling in love, out of love, fighting with her parents, etc. But it's in Norway, it's in Norwegian. It's kind of an interesting look into a culture that I'm not accustomed to looking into very often. I recommend. That's that my... Johanne, 30 år och singel. I'm pass. <laughs> All right. So this is a new take on a long-standing question of how long does it take to get over a viral URI? Specifically in this case, the authors look at snot from young children to determine which viruses they had, 
and what the expected clinical course is for each virus. Now, this question would have been immaterial only just a couple of years ago because we never would have known what virus they have. But now, since the COVID pandemic, you know, the widespread implementation of rapid viral panels, PCR panels, we now have, you know, often the specific knowledge of, oh, this is human metanumovirus or some rhinovirus or, you know, a coronavirus that may, that's not COVID or whatever. So maybe we can, you know, instruct folks on a little bit better. So between 2014 and 15, a single center in Finland collected nasopharyngeal swabs on all the kids presenting to their ED with URI symptoms. Parents filled out a questionnaire detailing which symptoms they had and how long the child had had those symptoms. A follow-up questionnaire was performed at 14 days, and if they were still having symptoms, another follow-up was done 14 days thereafter. The specimens were then frozen, only to be thawed, unfrozen caveman specimens in 2018, and PCR testing was performed using modern multiplex PCR that had the ability to detect all sorts of viral and bacterial pathogens. This is a retrospective look at the data with the key outcome being the duration of symptoms stratified by organism that was identified. There were basically about 700 kids initially enrolled, but only 500 had the 14-day questionnaire filled out. Of those, 70% of the kids were positive for at least one virus. So that came in with URI, 70% tested positive for one virus. 10% were positive for two viruses, and 1% were positive for three respiratory viruses, the daycare special. All three respiratory viruses, right? I think that's a very commonplace in Sanjay's house. Oh, the Aurora household, that's, that's just a Monday. That's, that is Monday. I come in here and I'm like, I'm like spraying gel yeah. everywhere. This place is a that's not too veritable right snot Because hole. the kids have been out of school for two weeks, healthy as a horse. Now I call it the daycare special. Yeah. yeah. It's, as soon as they go back. Three, three respiratory viruses. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. They'll be sick for the next three months. Yeah. I hope this paper says they're supposed to be safe for three months. That's actually. So that, that's how many had viruses. Interestingly, and I don't know why they did this, but they did. They ran the PCRs in this multiplex thing for bacterial pathogens, including things like pneumococcus, right? Strep pneumonia and Haemophilus influenza, not influenza, but Haemophilus influenza, the bacteria that used to cause, you know, hib, hib uh, and, you know, meningitis and such. Take a guess at how many kids tested positive for strep pneumococcus when they did the nasopharyngeal swab. 15%. 45%. And then it was like 30% had H flu. And I was like, what? I had to read it like six times. And then I read a little bit more. And those of you who are more learned than I are like, yeah, of course it was 45%. Because that's totally typical. Everybody's got strep pneumo. If you culture someone's nasopharynx or even their throat very often, it'll grow pneumococcus. It just lives there. That's totally normal. It's not a pathogen in that context. It's only a pathogen if it grows out of your blood or your CSF. So what did they find? The mean duration of symptoms was substantially longer than parents are expecting. For influenza-positive kids, so these are the ones with influenza, the mean days of rhinitis was 5.5. And it was 13.2 for random coronavirus, not COVID-19, but random coronavirus. It was nine days for rhinovirus and six days for adenovirus. Poor appetite in feeding ranged from a low of about three days for kids that had a simple rhinovirus to about six days for a human metanumovirus to seven days for people with adenovirus. So a full week of not eating right, right? Which 
you know, I just worked the shift the other day and, you know, parents are coming in day two. They're like, oh my God, he won't eat right. You know, like, get used to it. It's going to be a week of not eating. Importantly, about 25% of kids, a little more than that actually, had persistent symptoms for more than 14 days. 29% of those with rhinovirus did, 21% of those with adenovirus. And interestingly, the ones with influenza proper, that was the lowest risk of having persistent symptoms. Most, only 10% of them had it. But overall, over 25% of kids had symptoms for more than uh, two weeks. Cough was present in about 20% of the kids with PCR-proven viral pathogens at 14 days. The proportion of kids having symptoms lasting more than four weeks was only 4%. So that was pretty rare. So, you know, there was some modest variability in the duration of symptoms based on the specific viral pathogens, as I outlined there, a little bit, you know, poor feeding for the metanumo and adenovirus compared to the rhinovirus. But overall, the take-home point is most of these viruses seem to last on average about a week, but a good chunk of them will last more than two weeks. So we should just be mindful of those features when counseling parents about the expected course of their child's illness so they don't you know, worry unnecessarily, don't freak out, don't come back to the emergency department if he's still not feeding particularly well at five days unless there's, you know, he's dehydrated or something. And for us practitioners, remember, don't freak out if you get a culture of a snotty nose or a throat and it grows out pneumococcus. That's just a normal finding in the majority or close to the majority of kids. Yeah, I think this is the message of this paper I love, you know, because we do see that frequently where parents come back at day two or three of illness and their kid's not better and now they want antibiotics. Yeah. Or something like that. So I think this, you know, we could take some solace saying, hey, we know this is going to last about two weeks. I guess my only question on the methods of this paper is how do we know that this isn't like a daycare phenomenon? Oh, that boy, like they, no, but I, I mean, know. that they, they came in with an illness. The course actually lasted three or four days, but then, you know, snotty kid number two at school got them sick again. And what we're seeing here is like, well, illness after illness and not actually, there's really no way to know that, right? Well, there's no way to know unless there was an interval well period. So they did, that was part of the questionnaires, like how many until they were well. So if they had like overlapping illnesses, you're right. It could be that like, oh, you know, who knows? They started with, no, they didn't retest them at day four. I get it. I get it. Yeah. It's a limitation, yeah. but. Maybe that explains some of those like four weekers that might, and stuff, I think that's you know, probably, they got hit with another virus. It's certainly possible with those ones. Although we do know based on lots of other studies too, that especially if the kid develops cough, that that can last for several weeks. Cough, you know? I'll, I'll give yeah. you that one. Yeah. But you know, some of the other symptoms. Yeah. Anyway. I'm, I'm not disagreeing like I said, with that point. I love the message. But overall, it takes at least a week, very often too. Stop telling patients that they're going to be better in two days. So that they don't freak out and bother their pediatrician. I love the message when I'm telling it to patients. I hate it when it's occurring in my household. Yeah. That I know we're well, going to be that's an inconvenient truth. Gonna be down yeah. for the next two weeks. Editor's commentary. This study of children with URI symptoms presenting to the ED demonstrates that those with PCR-proven viral pathogens in the nasopharynx had symptoms for roughly one week on average. About 25 to 30% of them had symptoms for two weeks or more. Patients should be counseled about this longer expected course so they do not seek unnecessary medical care. Abstract number 11. Nebulized versus IV tranexemic acid for hemoptysis, a pilot randomized controlled trial. This is by Gopinath et al. from CHEST. TXA 
decreases bleeding by inhibiting the breakdown of fibrin clots. And there has been a big resurgence in interest in this medication, even though it's actually quite old, with recent trials examining its effectiveness in everything from trauma to GI bleed to intracranial hemorrhage to nosebleeds. In this paper, the authors start with the presumption that it does in fact work for hemoptysis, citing two small randomized control trials. And their question is not focused on whether or not it works for hemoptysis, but rather what's the best route to give it in a patient who has hemoptysis. So these authors from an academic center in India conduct an open-label, randomized, single-center pilot trial enrolling ED patients with active blood in their sputum, regardless of the amount, and randomize them to receive 500 milligrams of TXA, either nebulized or IV, three times a day. At least it was dosed three times a day for however long they were you know, in, in-house for up to three days. They excluded unstable patients, so those who were like, you know, have tons of hemoptysis, and those with life-threatening bleeds. The primary outcome was cessation of bleeding at 30 minutes, and secondary outcomes included need for procedures and adverse effects from the TXA. In this little pilot trial, they randomized 100 patients. Not too bad. And hemoptysis cessation at 30 minutes was observed in 72.7% of the nebulized TXA arm versus 50.9% of the IV TXA arm. They had a lot of secondary outcomes. This is pilot trial. They weren't trying to make any conclusions here. So they did a little data digging. Some of the selected ones I thought were kind of interesting were patients in the nebulized TXA arm had a greater reduction in the amount of hemoptysis and lower rates of IR procedures and lower rates of admission. The admission rate was actually quite different, 32% versus 61%. Two patients in the nebulized TXA group had bronchoconstriction, requiring beta agonists, and there were no clots reported in either arm, but the follow-up period was very short, as this was an ED-based study. The authors are very upfront in their discussion that this is pilot data, and they actually do a nice job listing out their own limitations, including a small sample size, potential for bias due to the unblinded design, some missing data problems, and threats to generalizability because in their sample, the most common reason for hemoptysis was TB by far. I had just never heard of this yeah. practice before of giving nebulized TXA in hemoptysis. Or IV t- TXA yeah. for my you know, I, I, You know, I know we are giving a lot. We're trying IV TXA for everything. Yeah. That doesn't really stun me. Yeah. It was the nebulized part of it I found so interesting. And th- there is a lot of pathophys discussion where they talk about, hey, you know, go straight to the source of the bleeding, yeah. bypass you know, skip, the go, do not collect $200, all that, yeah. all that other stuff. And I'm like, well, that actually makes sense to me from sure. like a simpleton perspective. So, and I was surprised to see there'd already been two trials on the topic. Mm-hmm. So I thought it was kind of interesting. There's a little bit of data behind it. You know, for me, I guess if I had like kind of a, you know, sicker hemoptysis patient not coding or something, and I was sort of struggling for what to do, I might give it a shot. Editor's commentary. In this pilot randomized control trial from an academic hospital in India, the authors enrolled stable patients with active hemoptysis and concluded that nebulized TXA might outperform IV TXA in terms of stopping the bleeding and suggest it might be better at preventing things like need for admission. The non-blinded design and some between-group differences at baseline make the paper more of a call for larger studies than a practice changer. 
but Nebulas TXA is definitely a cool idea that I have never used and I might consider when I am running out of tricks on my next hemoptysis patient. Abstract number 12, resolution of fever in the pediatric emergency department and bacteremia. This is by Baker et al. and It's in clinical pediatrics. So I don't know about you, but when I see a kid in the PZR and they have a whopping fever, here's what I do. Take notes here, Sanjay. I give them Tylenol. And assuming I'm not concerned about the possibility of a more severe infection or bacteremia, they look okay. I discharge them immediately <laughs> under yeah. the principle of whatever they have. I don't need to give to all of my staff and myself. Does this ring you know, true with you? I think for most kids, <laughs> that rings true. Right. So every now and again, I'll you know, look on the tracking board and I'll see some kids still loitering in the ER. I'm like, I discharged that kid an hour ago. What's going on there? I'll check with the nursing and they'll tell me, I'm just waiting for the fever to resolve. You know? And I'm like, I've never really understood it because I'm fine discharging with the kid, the kid regardless of the fever. That's why I put the order up. But is that dangerous? Does the absence of fever resolution actually mean anything? Does it suggest a more serious illness? Does it suggest that the child actually has bacteremia or something like that? And that's what these authors sought to answer. So they conducted a retrospective review of electronic health records from children presenting to a single center between January 2010 and 2020. To be included, the child had to, and this is really important, had to have fever in the ED had to receive an antipyretic, so there had to be some reason for them to, you know, defervesce. They had to have a follow-up temperature performed within a few hours, and, and this is the weird one, they had to have blood cultures drawn, right? Because we have to check and see if they have bacteremia. So the fact that they had blood cultures drawn suggests that this is a very unusual cohort of febrile children. Yeah, this and, is not the one that Mike is seeing from across the room saying, uh, why aren't you home? Yeah, already? why am I, why am, were you exposing me to this adenovirus? Yeah, I'm a little sicker. Right. So this is a very unusual cohort or something like that. So we'll take that into account as we interpret their data. The cohort was divided into those who defervest in response to the antipyretic that they received in the ED versus those who did not. And the key outcome was the difference in blood culture positivity between the two groups. Okay. Chart review methods were? Not described. Nailed it. Man, uh, you're I'm good. Get, at the, you're, you, were you an author of this paper? It only took almost five years, but I'm finally starting to get it. <laughs> right. The final cohort was uh, 6,300 kids who were febrile, got an antipyretic, had repeat temperature, and got blood cultures, which is a shockingly high number for me, to be honest. I mean, it's a 10-year study period. 6,000 kids, that means there's 600 a year, two a day, two a day of getting blood cold. I mean, I guess that's probably fair. And I think, and I think this isn't like a children's hospital, but it just seems like a lot, but whatever. Mean age was three. 60% of them had a complex medical condition. So these were not, again, not your run of the mill PZD, nine month old with a fever. 60% of them were admitted to the hospital. Overall, the blood culture positive rate was 4%, which again, that's crazy high for a, a well group of kids with, or, or let's, I should say average, right? an I mean, average group of kids. Who were being discharged, right? These well, kids these weren't, weren't all, admitted. No, well, a lot of these were admitted. 60% of them were admitted. Ah. Yeah. So these are sick kids. My, my whole point of emphasizing all this is to say, these are really sick kids. And even in that group, it's only 4% positivity rate, right? So anyway, so what about this defervescence bid? The authors conclude, and then I'll get into the data in a second, 
Among febrile children presenting to a tertiary care ED for whom blood culture was obtained, the response to an antipyretic varies based on the presence or absence of bacteremia. So they're, they're suggesting that that matters. I'm not sure that's really true. 32% of bacteremic patients versus 23% of non-bacteremic patients remained febrile at 180 minutes after the antipyretic, which is to say, you know, most of them defervest in both groups. The large majority defervest in both Almost groups. Almost two-thirds-ish right. in both groups. It was even more. By 240 minutes, by four hours, 23% of the bacteremic group remained febrile, and only 14% of the non-bacteremic group remained febrile which is statistically significantly different, but is that like meaningful, 14 versus 23%? The odds ratio for bacteremia, if still febrile, was 1.6. But put in another way, of the children who remained febrile at 240 minutes, 56 were bacteremic. That's 6%, right? And that's compared to the overall cohort that was 4%. So Remaining febrile at 240 minutes, like increase your risk, like a, you know, a trivial amount, not enough to be actionable. Add in all the other problems of the study that, you know, the cohort was really sick, they didn't do really good chart methodology, et cetera. And I would say, I would make a very strong argument that this statistical association is pretty clinically meaningless. So don't alter your practice. If the kid looks well enough to go home and recover, do not let the persistent fever rope you into a more aggressive strategy. Editor's commentary. This study of a very unusual and ill cohort of sick children showed a very weak statistical relationship between persistent fever after antipyretics and a higher prevalence of bacteremia. The results may be true in this cohort, but they are extremely unlikely to generalize to a routine ED population of febrile children. And even if they did, the magnitude of the difference is too small to alter clinical practice. Abstract number 13, Improving Discharge Safety in a Pediatric Emergency Department. This is by Paydar Darian et al. from Pediatrics. So the moment of discharge in the ED has been consistently recognized as an area for improvement, as it has been shown that frequently patients don't understand a lot of components of their visit, including test results, return precautions, diagnosis, follow-up plans. When they're leaving, it's, we've seen a lot of studies that show they just, there's a lot of gaps yeah. in a lot of different domains. And effective solutions to this problem are often created locally. This is basically a QI effort from a pediatric ED where the authors assembled, they went to, a, it's a big effort, a multidisciplinary team, including ED leadership, sounds like kind of admin types, ED providers, nurses, a QI consultant, an EHR expert, somebody who could say like, yeah, we can do that. We can put in that pop-up. We can't do this. And parent advocates to identify key drivers for a safe discharge process. And from these, and they go through some iterations of how they came up with it, they end up making a paper discharge checklist, which they locally called the golden ticket to describe, uh, to go through their discharge process. And it was largely, like I said, a checklist and incorporated both physician and nurse-specific tasks necessary to ensure discharge readiness, including a review of timely vital signs, test results, outstanding orders, accurate patient identification on paper, and discharge instructions. And it was like right on the back of the golden ticket, they had like some specific discharge things there. 
in addition to what was supposed to be a provider huddle, where it sounds like everybody's supposed to get together and go, checklist done, everything's done, we did everything, nurse, you're good, physician, you're good, provider, you're good, and then we go. They also generated a scripted discharge review of instructions with families. So there's a very routinized way they're supposed to do every single discharge. And they also widely publicized their new focus on high-quality discharge via posters, sort of in the lounges and in the ED, email blasts and announcements, and a mandatory web-based learning module. (laughs) And signs on every computer. And I was like, don't forget the discharge thing, right? So this is like pretty intensive multimodal intervention. It's a big one. The primary outcome was the rate of preventable discharge-related serious safety events, which decreased from four in the, the two-year pre-period that they were looking at. And they say that was sort of the motivation for doing this, was four, four is four is too, too many. Four to, percent? Four total. Four in two years, but these are the serious ones where something bad happened. There's they talk about minor ones a little bit too, but for the serious ones, that's why they did it down to zero in the two year intervention period. Press gainy responses regarding quality of discharge information did not change, nor did median length of stay, nor did return visit rates. So the number went down to zero, which is good. But it's pretty important to note that that was where the impact was. And how do you get those things, right? The only way to get one of those noted that one of these occurred had to be voluntary reporting by the providers and staff. So a nurse or something had to say, hey, I don't love the way this, I feel like this is a high risk discharge. I'm not comfortable with it. So that's kind of what it was. It wasn't actually based on a outcome. Some objective That's right. Thing. In that context, it's hard to know if this thing, like, you know, if it actually did anything from a patient perspective, or there was just so much focus on it that people were like, well, I'm not going to report. Yeah. That's the way we're doing this to not report it. So, yeah. but we see that a lot with these QI studies, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, the effort is really good. And in this case, it's like massive and the, the motivation behind it is good. But then when you look at the outcome, you're kind of like, eh, but it wasn't designed to really look at that outcome. So, I and get you wonder, it. Is there regression to the mean? Was four an outlier a year? And that triggered, but yeah. anything would have let it go back down. And it's to like you one. said before, it's like this thing was so big and so multimodal. We don't even know which one of the components component, yeah. did some hurt, did some help, did that, yeah. you know, we just really have no clue. But I think it's, it just mainly serves as a reminder that whatever you're going to do, the way they did it was right. Get the stakeholders, come up with some local solution, implement it and hope you see a good outcome. Editor's commentary. In this quality improvement effort turned publication, the authors tackled the real problem of improving the ED discharge process in a pediatric ED, and although the effort was massive and multimodal with a three-front approach, the impact on the primary outcome is at high risk of bias, and most other outcomes were unchanged to the disappointment of the research team. The best solutions to this problem will be locally developed, and the authors deserve kudos for including parents early in the process. Abstract number 14, covered or uncovered? A randomized controlled trial of Tegaderm versus no Tegaderm for ocular ultrasound. I like this. Marks et al., American Journal of Emergency Medicine. I just like that. 
covered or uncovered. I'm like, I don't even know. I, I'm like, well, where, is it, where are we going with that? You know, Tegaderm for the eye was not where I thought when I first read that, started reading that title. Damn, it's a great study. So POCUS for ocular complaints is increasingly common. And one of the indications for diagnostic ultrasound that I'm very enthusiastic for, as opposed to procedural stuff for ultrasound, which I'm enthusiastic for a lot of things, at our institution, and I think many others, we place a tegaderm over the closed eye before we do this POCUS ultrasound. And this is to make it more comfortable for the patients so they don't feel the gel get into their lashes. We then put copious amounts of ultrasound gel on top of the tegaderm and then, you know, put the probe on to get the images. It turns out this is a practice without evidence. And in fact, a traditional way of doing, you know, ocular ultrasound does not include this tegaderm barrier. The gel itself is water-based, hypoallergenic, and is generally not reported to cause any corneal irritation. So like, why do we do it? Even more, the tegaderm barrier may interfere with image quality if applied weird. Like sometimes you put it in, there's like bubbles under it and stuff. It's hard to get it really smooth. And the tegaderm barrier itself might just cause some some stuff, right? Like some local irritation, you rip it off the eyebrow right, people be, or something. People are much more likely to be allergic to plastic than they are to this hypoallergenic ultrasound gel that we apply to all over the rest of their body. And if you've ever, you know, those of you who do any of this stuff, and those of you who've ever been trained by an ultrasonographer, they believe that more is merrier on the gel, right? Like they'd put people in an ultrasound gel bath if they could get away with it. But for some reason, when it gets close to the eye, we put this tegaderm thing on there. Anyway, so these authors conduct a randomized crossover trial to determine if tegaderm or no tegaderm produced higher quality ocular ultrasound images. And then the secondary outcome was sort of like patient discomfort and preference to this thing. So the method was clever enough. Adult patients with vision loss or headache were enrolled and received ocular ultrasound on both eyes. They were randomly assigned to having one of the eyes covered with tegaderm, and then the other, they just had gel applied directly to the you know, closed eyelid. So the patient was their own control. They, the patient was their own control. It was random in terms of like whether it was the affected eye or the unaffected eye or anything like that. They just did right and left and you know, whatever. So all that washes itself out. Patients with traumatic ocular injuries were excluded, right? Probably because, you know, you shouldn't be pushing on eyes where you're worried about stuff like that. The outcomes were image quality on a five-point Likert scale with higher scores being better. So one, a score of one on this is no landmarks are visible. So it's terrible. And a score of five is textbook quality images. A score of three is minimally sufficient to make a diagnosis. And then they also got this rating of discomfort with, you know, 10 being high on a scale from one to 10, 10 being the worst discomfort and one being no, you know, zero or one being very little discomfort. The exams appear, it's not quite explicitly stated, but they appear to have been performed by ultrasound fellows. They ultimately enrolled 90 patients, mean age 46, and the majority of them had headache as a complaint. So not specifically an ocular thing. I guess they were looking for optic nerve sheet diameter. They don't go into that. The no tegaderm produced superior images compared to the tegaderm group by one point on this five-point scale. The mean score was 4.33 in the no tegaderm group and 3.33 in the tegaderm group, a statistically significant difference. Looked at another way, 
the images were overall rated as acceptable in 98% of the no tegaderm group and 83% of the tegaderm group. So, you know, that's a treatment effect of like 15%. That's, that's huge. That's a really, really big number. Patient discomfort was minimal and not significantly different between the two groups. It was like 1.4 and 1.7. So nothing. It is noteworthy that 54% of the patients preferred the Tegaderm versus 30% preferred no Tegaderm and the remainder who were like, I don't even know what we're talking about here. So there's a slight preference towards the Tegaderm. This is a good study, but it does have its limits. The images were obtained by fellows, which probably artificially narrows the quality gap, right? Like, I need all the help I can get, you know, and they probably are able to work through the Tegaderm and, you know, whatever else. On the other hand, there was no blinding. So the ultrasound fellows who likely knew the purpose of the study could have sandbagged it a little bit and been like trying really hard on the no Tegaderm group to get really good images and on the Tegaderm group going like, eh, I don't see too much. Let's move on. So, you know, that could go either way. Finally, the scale they use is not really a validated scale, this one to five thing. But when you look at it, you know, the difference between one and two, two and three, three and four, four and five, it looks really important. Those are like very significant differences. So I think overall, this is actually very compelling evidence that we should not be using Tegaderm when we're getting these ocular pocus ultrasounds. The authors suggest that that's, they say that's probably true, but they're like, you know, Patients do have a slight preference for it. So you could do a thing where you do it with Tegaderm and you see, do you get really good image quality? And if you do, you're done. And if you don't, take it off and redo it. But me, I need all the help I can get. I'm going to start with no Tegaderm and that, that's all I'm going to do for now. Until I hear better, there's no reason to worry about this. It doesn't hurt your eye to get some goop on it. It's not a big deal. So just do it without Tegaderm. What's the problem? Editor's commentary. This is a nice single-site, unblinded RCT of ocular point-of-care ultrasound with or without the use of Tegaderm to protect the eye from the discomfort of ultrasound gel. The results strongly suggest that image quality is superior without the Tegaderm barrier, and patient discomfort is no different. Patients do have a mild tendency to prefer the Tegaderm barrier, but this slight preference should not be prioritized over producing higher image quality. Quick take. Abstract number 15. Bilirubin displacing effect of ceftriaxone in term infants with unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia. This is by Amin by the Journal of Pediatrics. And you heard that correct. No et al. This is a study. Single person. We haven't had one of those in a couple of years. It's been a really long time. And it's not like a review or something. It's a prospective study. Of children getting ceftriaxone. With one author. Although most neonates with sepsis have resolution of symptoms in the first few days after starting antibiotic therapy, they still end up staying in the hospital for about a week to finish their cefotaxime regimen as they can't be given IM ceftriaxone because it's going to displace bilirubin, which then crosses the blood-brain barrier and causes neurotoxicity. Kernicterus. Nice. Yeah, reaching back. Uh, I, had to, I had to dig deep. But is this even true? The author explains that this belief of a bilirubin displacing effect is founded on in vitro studies and or indirect methods of free bilirubin measurements. So in this study, the author, feels weird to keep saying that, enrolled 
infants less than seven days old being treated in the NICU for sepsis with a total serum bilirubin concentration between 6 and 12 nanograms per milliliter at the fourth day of life after excluding those with suspicion of being high risk for hearing issues and gave them a dose of IV ceftriaxone, 50 mg per cake. It's a little bit unclear to me if they just got the one dose or they then switched them to IV and maybe even converted them to IM ceftriaxone. That part of the method is just totally unclear to me, but I know that the measurement they're doing was just after this first dose of IV ceftriaxone. So let me make sure I got it. Yeah, babies come in with a fever. You get admitted to pick you or nick you or whatever. You get started on cefotaxime like normal because we know that mm-hmm. you're going to get cronicterous or something like that. And then on day four- They hit him with ceftriaxone. They just said- Screw the cefotaxime. We're going to go with ceftriaxone. I'm not sure. Like I said okay. before, I don't know if it was well, one dose. Well, but I mean, dose. they did one. They, they did, did one. On, he going to do one. They, they, they did, did one. one dose of ceftriaxone, and they got a billy right afterwards. That's correct. So, so let me just, get into the methods. Okay. So they used two different analyzers to measure free bilirubin concentration by the peroxidate method. What they say is that's the way you're supposed to do it now, 15 minutes after the ceftriaxone had finished infusing. So, so fi- if it knocks billy out of there- It should occur right away. Right. It shouldn't get worse over time. Okay, got it. They enrolled 27 infants with a mean gestational age of 39.2 weeks. So these were, like I said, less than a week old, and found the free bilirubin levels to be unchanged in one of the analyzed samples and one of the analyzers, and actually a little bit lower on the other analyzer when they compared them to the pre-antibiotic levels. They drew a bilirubin, gave ceftriaxone, waited 15 minutes, drew another bilirubin. The study is limited by a small sample size, exclusion of infants with a baseline billy of greater than 12, and the only post-measurement was done at 15 minutes, right? So I don't know what happened at 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour, a day, a week, a month. There's no more clinical follow-up. So why do this? This is like a weird thing to give them one dose of antibiotics and measure levels. It's not to change practice. It's not to say, hey, we, should, we can give these people ceftriaxone now. The author here is saying they just want to question the validity of this age-old dogma about ceftriaxone and neonates and are hoping that this might generate some equipoise around the topic where you actually could do a trial to change practice. So no one's suggesting a change practice here, just kind of going, we've learned this our whole medical lives. Is this even true or is this straight fake news? This is like, it goes into the old series, Medical Myths. You know, like here's a study that shows, hey, that medical myth that, you know, ceftriaxone does this may be in fact that a myth. You know, we don't know. I mean, obviously. This is is not a myth buster. No. This is just a. But none of those myth busting things ever were myth busters. They just exposed the the flimsy data. One author, 27 babies, one Billy Rubin measurement each. Editor's commentary. In this small study, the author makes an effort to question the age-old belief that ceftriaxone causes bilirubin displacement in neonates by actually giving four-day-old babies being treated for sepsis a dose and then directly measuring bilirubin levels 15 minutes later. A rise in bilirubin levels was not observed in this sample and this may be enough to set the stage for a larger study and a real trial on the topic. If proven to be true, this could have enormous clinical implications as neonates could be given antibiotics IM at some point during their infection, obviating the need for a week-long admission. 
Quick take. Abstract number 16. Medical masks versus N95 respirators for preventing COVID-19 among healthcare workers, a randomized trial. This is by Loeb et al., and it's in the Annals of Internal Medicine. So is a medical mask enough to prevent COVID transmission in healthcare settings as compared with N95 respirators? Obviously, N95s filter the virus better than surgical masks. That is known and not in dispute, but they are extremely annoying to wear and make your face all smushed and with dents. So people take them off all the time, which then, you know, sort of counterbalances that efficacy by reducing that efficacy. So on balance, what happens? This was a multi-nation, randomized controlled trial of healthcare workers who routinely treated COVID patients in the hospital, but excluded the ICU, but did include the ED. Healthcare workers were randomized to work with either a medical mask or an N95 at all times while at work, including, you know, in break rooms and et cetera. That's what they were instructed to do. Those randomized to medical masks could use an N95 at their discretion if they were doing something that was very high risk. The study only enrolled healthcare workers, and this is really important, who had never had COVID and who had not been vaccinated and who did not have a risk factor for developing severe COVID if infected, because that's just unethical. They should have been in N95s, according to the study authors. The key outcome was verified COVID infection across the groups at 10 weeks post-randomization. So it was a 10-week-long study. The study was powered to detect a 50% reduction in COVID infections in the N95 group compared with the medical mask group. A 1,000 healthcare workers were randomized between May 2020 and January 2022. 10.5% of the medical mask group got COVID within 10 weeks compared with 9.3% of the N95 groups. So statistically insignificant and probably clinically insignificant as well. Adherence was rated as always, like they always had the mask on in 92% of the medical mask group versus only 80% of the N95 group, which may be the reason that there's you know general clinical equivalence between the two. There's a lot of discussion in this paper about the infection rates in specific countries and specific timeframes because, again, this started in May 2020 and it went through January 2022. And it's the world changed a lot in that timeframe, including vaccination rates and stuff. Remember, you had to not be vaccinated to be included in this in the first place. The key pieces that emerged out of that sort of data analysis was that early in the pandemic in developed countries, the N95 seemed to be a little bit more protective, like the rate was 50% lower. But later in the pandemic, especially when the Omicron variant was dominant, the N95 basically had zero effect whatsoever. Ultimately, there's a lot of limitations in this study, including that we have no idea. It's really about generalizability to today. We have no idea how vaccination affects these findings because everybody here was unvaccinated. But for me, this just, you know, it's a nice affirmation that medical masking for routine care is likely to be sufficient. N95s still should probably be used for aerosolizing procedures or potentially for healthcare workers that are high risk for more severe disease. But that is a decision that will have to be individualized. Editor's commentary. This large multinational study shows that the rate of COVID infection among healthcare workers was similar whether they were randomly assigned 
to regular medical mask use versus N95 respirators. House of Medicine. Abstract number 17. Emergency department embedded palliative care service creates value for health systems. This is by Wang et al. from the Journal of Palliative Medicine. And I was sort of looking through the EMA database, and there is not a lot of stuff in there about palliative care, palliative medicine, and the ED, although it's, generally speaking, kind of becoming a hot topic right now that people yeah, are you discussing. See, you see fellowships emerging, you see a lot of programs, but yeah, not a lot so of figured literature. it's worth talking about sure. a little bit, even though this paper is not, you know, world's most stellar. It has been shown, by way of background, that Early palliative care is associated with improved quality of life and extended survival by three months despite receiving less aggressive care at the end of life. Palliative care and hospice are not the same thing. And I think that's one really important thing to understand up front. Palliative care can be given at any point while a patient with a life-threatening illness is still receiving disease-modifying therapy and is designed to prevent and alleviate physical, emotional, social, and spiritual components of suffering, as well as to initiate discussions on goals of care. While hospice, on the other hand, it's a type of palliative care, really, that occurs in the last six months of life, and the goals of hospice are focused on comfort and symptom management, not cure. So they are very different. Palliative care in the ED has become a focus of ED conversation, and it is endorsed by ASAP, saying, hey, this is something that we should be thinking about as emergency practitioners. The reason for that is we often see patients with severe cancer, dementia, a host of incurable conditions, and we could serve as an early referral point for all of these patients. Like we are kind of the gateway. We see them a lot, you know, and I don't know if we're thinking about it a lot. Also, it's been shown that early engagement with palliative care services can decrease future ED visits and hospital costs. So that's good. And in the paper, and when I was sort of just reading about what's going on with, you know, how the, the blogosphere is looking at palliative care in the ED, people seem to be really interested in the fact that the principles embodied in palliative care might be able to help us battle burnout, which is kind of running rampant throughout our specialty. And the reason is a little bit roundabout, but they're kind of saying, hey, it kind of takes away a little bit of the noise and chaos of the ED and lets you have a real human conversation with somebody about something that really could impact them at a vulnerable moment when they are coming looking for care. Just kind of saying it can be a real humanistic moment and like a feel-good moment for you. Well, it kind of reminds me of how, you know, we talk about number needed to treat. And Jerry used to always talk about this. Like, you know, the number needed to treat for a STEMI with like, you know, TPA versus streptokinase is like 100. You have to do 100 cases. You can't even feel that as an ER doc, that difference, right? But the number needed to treat to help someone suffering actually is pretty close to one, right? Like if anybody who's suffering, we probably have some tools that we can use to help make that go down. Yeah, I think that's well said. And I think they're just trying to remind us that referral to palliative care is a tool that we may not be thinking about a lot for a few reasons, right? It may not just be thinking about it. We haven't ever thought about doing something like that. Or your local referral system might be cumbersome or you have no idea how to use it. You've right. never used it before. So in this paper, these authors from Scripps Healthcare System in San Diego 
stationed a palliative care provider in the ED from 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. daily for a year, and then basically report on a variety of outcomes in a pre-post analysis. The year before the provider was there, and the year after. And it actually, it wasn't seven days a week when it started. It kind of ramped up after a month or two because of some popularity in the program. Consultations could either be initiated by the treating provider. So the provider could go, hey, you know, there's a patient over here. I'm not sure. They might be eligible. Can you go take a look? Or from the palliative care provider themselves. They could look at the track board and kind of look at conditions. Self-referral. Self-referral. I think I might be able to help this person here. The number of ED consultations increased by a factor of 10, from 70 in the year before to 758 in the year where the provider was there. Now, this was interestingly not just a shift in the location of the consults, like thinking, oh, these people, maybe once they got admitted in the ICU, they all got consults or something. And they provide the total overall consults in the hospital, which went from 713 the year before, so you know, only 10 in the ED, so almost all of them on the floor, to 1,474 in the year when the provider was there. After ED consultation, 49% of patients changed their code status. 11% of admitted patients were actually downgraded to a lower level of care. And they give a bunch of other secondary outcomes, but I thought those are two of the most interesting. Then they provide a really complicated financial analysis of hospital days saved by the program. And this is where, for me, it just looked a little weird. They said that the patients who received an ED consultation had an 8.1 day shorter total length of stay. So over a week shorter by that one ED consultation. But presumably a bunch of them weren't admitted, right? I mean, that's... No, of the ones who were admitted. Like it's, it's a very, this is where it gets a little messy. And the descript, they do a matched cohort analysis is what they actually do, but they don't describe it. It's pretty vague, but they use it to sort of justify what they said in their title, that it creates value by saying it offset the cost of having a provider, which wasn't cheap. They give that cost as well. It's like almost half a million dollars to well, keep somebody that there, provider somebody, there yeah. for a year with a 6.7 times ROI based on sort of hospital days saved and stuff. ED providers and nurses indicated high satisfaction with the embedded consultation service. All the providers strongly agreed that the service was valuable for patients and wanted it to continue. And they did look at things like ED flow and length of stay, making sure it wasn't infecting your pocketbook, you know, your RVUs as a patient in the room for a long time getting palliative care consult. And it did not. Length of stay, all those kinds of things, the metrics they could look at were unchanged. Now, there's some limitations here with the main one being generalizability, right? This solution may have worked where they worked and may have been financially beneficial at their Mm -hmm. hospital, but they may not be true at all with, you know, where you are working and the way you get things done already. I think for me, it's just good to be aware of sort of what palliative care is, what it can do, and that it is endorsed by ASAP as something we should be thinking about. And I should, we should think about it because the value certainly on a patient level, like you said, on a one human in front of you is very high. So maybe this is just sort of a general reminder to say, hey, figure out what palliative care services you have available at your hospital, how to access them. And if you're a very motivated emergency provider, maybe even figure out a pathway or best practice for where you work. Editor's commentary. In this quasi-experimental study, the authors found that even though the cost 
of having a palliative care provider full-time in the ED was high, the ROI at their hospital made it financially beneficial and it was well-received by emergency department providers. I recognize the best solutions here will be local, and for me, the biggest take-home point is simply awareness. We are on the front line and serve as a touchpoint for many patients who are eligible for palliative care services, so we should be on the lookout and know about our local referral options as successful engagement can make a real difference in a patient's life. Abstract number 18, COVID-19 and excess all-cause mortality in the United States and 20 comparison countries between June 21 and March 22. This is by Belinsky et al., and it's in JAMA. So this is a study of the comparative effectiveness of COVID vaccination and other mitigation strategies across the world and within the United States. The point was to estimate the excess mortality due to COVID in the United States compared with other developed nations during the Delta and Omicron surges, and also to compare how the least and most vaccinated states in the United States fared. The results, again, just how amazing COVID vaccination has been at avoiding deaths and how absolutely shameful it is that a wealthy country like ours did not take full advantage of having early access to these vaccines. The study itself is relatively straightforward. The authors looked at COVID-specific mortality and all-cause excessive deaths reported to the WHO from 20 peer nations in the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD. These are mostly Western European wealthy nations, but a few on the list include Israel, Australia, and New Zealand, who are just not Western European, but they're still wealthy. They compare this with the similar statistics for the U.S. overall and also the 10 states with the highest vaccination rate and the 10 states with the lowest vaccination rate in the United States. The results show that COVID death rates across the 20 OECD countries during these two spikes range from about 4 per 100,000, 4 deaths per 100,000 in New Zealand to 65 deaths per 100,000 in Australia. Average was right around 40 deaths per 100,000 people. For the United States as a whole, it was 117 per 100,000. Yeah, that's right. 117. Double the worst. But it gets worse than that. The 10 most vaccinated states had a rate of about 75 per 100,000, which would still be the highest in the 20 countries within the OECD. And our vaccination rate would just about be the lowest if we were the top 10 highest. But the lowest 10 states had a death rate of 146 per 100,000. So just more than three and a half times the highest rate in the other group. It's awful. When looking at all-cause mortality, not COVID-specific mortality, and we look at that because a lot of COVID deaths are probably undercounted, the results are even worse. Excess mortality ranged from 5 per 100,000 to 82 per 100,000 across the 20 countries, with a mean of right around 50. For the U.S., it was 145. In the 10 least vaccinated states, excess mortality was just about 200 per 100,000, compared with 65 per 100,000 in the most vaccinated states. This all translates to about 350,000 excess deaths that occurred in the United States during the Delta and Omicron waves that would have been avoided if we had COVID containment strategies that were similar to the average OECD country. 
I guess it could have been worse if the U.S. as a whole had performed as bad as its 10 least vaccinated states, we would have lost another 160,000 people more than we actually did. So vaccinations worked. And I actually think it's important for us to keep reminding people of that because clearly there's been some vaccination fatigue. And we don't really know at this point is, you know, is a third and fourth booster dosing, how important is that and things like that. And sometimes I think that that message gets lost a little and people are like, yeah, vaccination at this point, you know, who cares? It's these vaccines, whatever, whatever. It's worth reminding people 350,000 extra Americans died because uh, we didn't vaccinate well. So maybe we should like learn that lesson and vaccinate very aggressively going forward and certainly not take the position that vaccinations are just not that important. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, God forbid another pandemic yeah, rolls course. down the line, then, you know, we can look at some of these numbers and be a little bit more aggressive, change our, whatever, you know, yeah. a high level we need to do. These these are all very I feel sobering. like this should be in the news now, like these estimates re- really showing like what yeah. the, you know, what what's going, so the, exactly what you're saying. So that the next time we're like, okay, well, I forgot what would happen with the, yeah, you know, it wasn't was that big of a deal. That's yeah, it what was, it was. It was a half of excess deaths, you know. And that's not saying that if everybody had been vaccinated, that's if we'd just been average performing. It's like if we'd been like New Zealand, it would have been like way, way more than that, you know. But anyway, food for thought. Editor's commentary. This CDC sponsored study shows that the U.S. population suffered about 350,000 excess deaths compared to other OECD nations during the Delta and Omicron waves of the COVID pandemic, likely attributable to poor vaccination rates. Quick take. Abstract number 19. Price comparison of human and veterinary formulations of common medications. This is by Hake et al. From JAMA Internal Medicine, real not journal. J- not JAMA Veterinary mes- no, Medicine. it's not. This is a research letter, and it's a quick take. So, although millions of Americans gain coverage through the Affordable Care Act, more than 32 million consumers, or something like that, in the many millions of consumers, remain uninsured and exposed to the full cost of services and medications, and a lack of price transparency in general in healthcare makes comparison shopping for the average consumer very difficult. I actually published a paper a few years ago showing that drug prices varied within a single zip code by up to fourfold, depending on different medications and the type of pharmacy you went to, that if you shopped around, you actually could save a lot of money, but there's just no way to easily do that. Understanding how drug prices are set is essentially a mystery. A mystery wrapped in a box and an enigma, whatever the expression is, right? And in this paper, the authors look at the price differences for commonly used medications when purchased at a human pharmacy versus when purchased at a pet pharmacy. For human medications, they looked at two different prices. They looked at good RX prices, which is sort of like considered the standard median price for an area and a medication, things like that. And then they looked at prices offered by Costco, which is sort of considered the standard for discount pharmacy prices. And then for pet prices, specifically dog prices, they looked largely at Chewy.com. 120 medications, of which 119 had a generic formulation. The average human retail price on GoodRx and the discounted price at Costco was higher than the pet price for 93% 
and 64% of medications, respectively. The median good Rx to pet ratio was 5.5, and the median Costco to pet ratio was 1.4. They also, they do, for a research letter, they really take advantage of that unlimited tables and figures thing. There's a lot of tables and figures in here. They break it down by category, sort of medication category, and it looked like it was highest for antimicrobials overall at a ratio of 4.4. So that was where the biggest difference was. Now, it's possible that if you go to a pharmacy directly, you can actually obtain discounts in real time that might bring the human cash prices down, thus attenuating the magnitude of their findings. But the point is made that something has to be done about prescription drug costs as there is simply no transparency and there is a massive variation in pricing for the exact same medication based on who's buying it, right? where you buy it, if you go to like your local independent pharmacy, your GoodRx, your Costco, or whatever, and apparently what species you are <laughs> when you pay. Editor's commentary. In this research letter, the authors compare cash prices of dog and human versions of 120 common and largely generic prescription medications and found in a best-case scenario, two-thirds of medications were more expensive when purchased for humans than for dogs. The lack of price transparency in healthcare is a major driver of costs, and you should be aware that although it is hard, comparison shopping does have value as prices differ from location to location, zip code to zip code, pharmacy to pharmacy, and apparently species to species. Abstract number 20, reduced emergency department visits and hospitalization with the use of an unsanctioned safe consumption site for injection drug use in the United States. This is by Lambden et al., and it's in the Journal of General Internal Medicine. It's a little bit different, and I really want to like and believe the findings of the study, but I'm not sure I can get quite there. So the idea is to evaluate the effectiveness of safe consumption drug sites at preventing opioid overdose and death. These are locations where people who inject drugs can come and inject their own drugs in a somewhat monitored, clean space using clean needles and syringes. And the point is to avoid fatal overdoses and transmission of hepatitis C, HIV, and possibly reduce skin and soft tissue infections as well. The contrarian view or the oppositional view to these safe consumption sites is that creating such a safer site will induce some people to use injection drugs who might otherwise not have been willing to do it or might induce them to use larger amounts and therefore paradoxically increase harms. A few countries and municipalities outside the United States have made these legal. And just recently, I think there's been a couple in the United States that have been made legal. But up until now, there's basically been none in the United States. And this particular safe consumption site was what they're calling unsanctioned. Another word for that is totally illegal and underground. So this is a drug site that was in some city. They don't tell us where. They're very careful all around to not disclose anything that might inadvertently whatever, disclose where the, this unsanctioned safe consumption site is. So this thing is there, and 
it's illegal and people go and know about it and go in there during certain hours of the day. And they describe it a little bit. They say that it has six metal places where that someone can sit there and there's somebody who's trained in how to administer oxygen, give naloxone, and then you know help them exchange clean needles. And that exists. And some people know about it and they're given a special, this is true, a special card. Some people are on the street are invited to go use it. And it's like a golden ticket and told, don't share this information with anyone. This seems like quite an endeavor to get through an IRB as well to even present this data. Yeah, they talk a lot about th- these issues, you know, and I it's bet. and it's very unclear. I mean, the sanction, you know, they they didn't make this, or at least the authors are not acting as though they created this unsanctioned safe consumption site. They're simply studying the effects of it. So somebody else made it. But yes, there's a lot of questions around that. So the authors here, though, conduct a longitudinal study of just about 500 people who inject drugs in an area near the safe consumption site over one year. Basically, they interviewed them at baseline six and 12 months, asking them questions about whether they had had an overdose event, and they had a definition of that, whether they had skin and soft tissue infections, or other health outcomes, like if they had been to an emergency department or been hospitalized for any reason you know, at all during this sort of one-year longitudinal period. And finally, they asked them if they had used the safe consumption site, because it's just people in the area around it. They had a complete one-year follow-up for just about 400 people, so pretty high number considering the type of population you're dealing with, 400 out of 500. 12% of the subjects, which is 59 subjects, had used the safe consumption site. And they had used it irregularly, but not uncommonly. On average, they used it 30 times in the six-month intervals. So they used it quite considerably, but not every day. They used propensity score matching to match those 59 who use the safe consumption site with others who did not use the safe consumption site. And then they compared those outcomes across the groups. The key outcome of interest, as I said, were self-reported overdose or medical examiner proven fatal overdose, and then self-reported ED use or hospitalization, and finally skin or soft tissue infection. Overall, the relative risk of an overdose among safe consumption site users was 0.76, I should say odds ratio, compared to the other group. That was not statistically significant. However, patients with injection drug use who used the safe consumption site had a statistically significant decrease in self-reported ED visits or hospitalizations with an odds ratio of 0.7 approximately. The authors end up pretty bullish in favor of these safe consumption sites based on the non-significant decrease in overdoses and the effect on emergency health services. And ultimately, this may be true. It may be that this is a causal relationship. But I have to be honest, it's also very possible that people who use the safe consumption sites are just different than those who don't in unmeasurable ways that you can't account for through propensity matching, like specifically that they just may be more cautious individuals. You know, they're more concerned about overdose than others. Still, it's a good beginning and an important analysis in a population that to say is difficult to study, in an environment that's difficult to study, is a massive understatement. And it's an important initial observation as it at least tends to refute the idea that these safe consumption sites may paradoxically induce riskier behavior. 
So while I'm not willing to say this is strong evidence that they, you know, prevent overdoses, I am willing to sort of accept the notion that this is relatively good evidence that it's not inducing overdoses, which I think is an important first step. Yeah. And I think, you know, for me, kudos to these authors for like getting this done, getting this data out there, because, you know, no matter what your sort of belief is going into hearing this paper, we got to know the facts at the end of the day. And we'll take, I guess, whatever we get, no matter how we get it. And this is awesome. And this is the first thing that might allow for some forward-thinking municipalities to say, okay, let's try this. You know, let's not make it unsanctioned. Let's sanction it and study it for real. Because, you know, otherwise there's not enough equipoise in the community. And there's obviously going to be people in the community who don't want a sanctioned, you know, consumption site near their home or their business or whatever. And they're going to fight that tooth and nail. And unless you have evidence that it might be helpful, it's going to be a hard battle to, you know, work against that sort of group of folks. So this is incredible work, really interesting. You know, the impact on emergency medicine is relatively modest. Maybe it reduces some ED visits, but in terms of the house of medicine, I think very interesting stuff. Editor's commentary. This is a small study of patients who inject drugs who consumed drugs at a safe consumption site versus matched controls who did not. The results suggest that safe consumption site use is associated with lower overdose risk and lower emergency health service use. Whether this association is truly causal remains an open question, but this data is interesting and represents some of the first to come out of a U.S. community site. Hello, EMA. Welcome to the March 2023 Ultra Summary. I'm Jess Monis, and here as always with the brilliant and insightful Jenny Beck Esme. Whoa, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. They like me. Hi. Really, really. <laughs> exactly. That's literally what I was thinking in my head. Hi, how are you? Good. How are you doing? Doing just fine. Doing just fine. Good, good. Well, I'm sure by now we are all over the cold and the unending viral illnesses that seem to accompany them. Oh, my God. Horrible. It's just a nightmare. It's a nightmare. My kids have been sick, like, intermittently, nonstop, for just, like, weeks and weeks and weeks and months. It's just I think that is the status of every child in (laughs) in the United States right now. It's a nightmare. It's just a nightmare. One one after another, constant. Yeah. Well, hopefully, you know, March can come in like a lion and hopefully we'll go out like a lamb. Exactly. And then all of this can just settle out. Settle down. And maybe by next winter, it'll just be like a little bit chiller. (laughs) Maybe. maybe. All right. We can dream. A girl can dream. We can dream. We can dream. All right, Jenny, you ready to do this? Let's do it. All right. Paper number one, Defibrillation Strategies for Refractory Ventricular Fibrillation. This Canadian trial cluster randomized patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and refractory VF to one of three arms. The control group received standard defibrillation with anterolateral pad placement. One intervention was vector change, where they switched to anterior-posterior pad placement. And the third group underwent double sequential external defibrillation, where shocks were given in succession from two separate machines with two sets of pads. In the double sequential group, about one-third survived to hospital discharge, compared to roughly one-fifth with vector change and one-sixth in the control arm. 
They also found that the double sequential group had higher rates of good neurologic outcomes. While this sounds promising, there were many problems. The first was that they were only able to enroll half as many patients as intended due to COVID-19, which can exaggerate the effect size. Additionally, the paramedics were not blinded, which could have introduced bias. There was also a high rate of protocol violation, with about 15 to 20% not sticking with the plan. And lastly, their control arm was anterolateral pad placement, but if it was anterior-posterior, would we have seen such a difference? While double sequential external defibrillation is generating a lot of buzz, see what I did there, Jenny? I like it. I did. (laughs) We need to see more prospective data before investing in a ton of new defibrillators. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think Sanjay says in his segment that maybe this is something just worth doing after you've done everything else, you know, when you're in the kitchen sink territory of your resuscitation. I don't know. I do remember reading sometime early on when all of this was starting to become a buzz that this might be damaging our defibrillators in in a way that they don't necessarily pick up when they're doing their self-testing mode. So I'm not sure if that's true. If someone out there knows whether that's true or not true, they, they can let us know. But yeah, I'm not sure. I think the the question with that is whether if you defibrillate at the same time, then uh-huh. that increases that risk. You know, these were, you know, about a second apart. Sure, 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 sure. Yeah. To try to like minimize Mm -hmm. that. But you know what? And who knows, right? I mean, this is out in the field. By the time they get to us, they've had, you know, tons of shocks, you know, tons of rounds of ACLS. Would it make a difference at that point? Unclear. So I think we need to see more data overall. And we probably will, right? For sure. Paper number two, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation in the therapy of cardiogenic shock. This is a multicenter randomized control trial in which 122 patients in severe cardiogenic shock were randomized to either immediate venoarterial or VA ECMO or a conservative treatment strategy in which VA ECMO was discouraged. Treating physicians were allowed to use ECMO as a crossover later in the patient course if they felt it was indicated. Their primary outcome, which was a composite of death, resuscitated circulatory arrest, or need for another mechanical circulatory support device within 30 days was found in 64% of the immediate VA ECMO group and 71% of the conservative group. This was a non-significant difference with maybe a hint of efficacy, but there was a large percentage of patients that crossed over from the conservative to the ECMO arm, which muddies the water a little bit. Overall, this paper probably isn't changing much in the ECMO landscape right now, But I am sure, as with paper number one, we're going to get more on this topic. For sure. Paper number three, comparison of years and a just unlikely D-dimer testing for pulmonary embolism in the emergency department. This was a two-part study that prospectively validated the years criteria, as well as looked at a new PE assessment tool called a just unlikely. As a reminder, years has three questions. Is PE the most likely diagnosis? Are there clinical signs of a DVT? And is there hemoptysis? Yes to any of these, and the D-dimer cutoff stays at 500. No to all of them, and you can increase to 1,000. They found the sensitivity of years to be 93% and the specificity to be 45. Their adjust unlikely criteria has only one question. Is PE the most likely diagnosis? (laughs) Simple enough, Pretty simple. You can't get more simple. If yes... Keep the 500 D-dimer cutoff, and if no, age adjust it. With this tool, 
they found the sensitivity to be 100% with a specificity of 32%. Not too bad. Not too bad. Yeah, not too bad. While it just unlikely had a higher sensitivity than years, less imaging would have been spared, which I'm okay with. Before we go all in on a just unlikely, we need to see some additional external validation, but I'm intrigued. I am intrigued too. Paper number four, impact of intravenous calcium with diltiazem for atrial fibrillation slash flutter in the emergency department. This is a retrospective chart review of patients treated with IV dilt for rapid AFib flutter. Then they divided those patients into those that received IV calcium within 60 minutes of their dilt dose versus those that did not receive IV calcium. They wanted to see if this co-administration of calcium would somehow blunt the hypotension that can sometimes result from diltiazem. So they looked primarily at the drop in blood pressure, but also had change in heart rate as a secondary outcome. Basically, they found no difference in either. The change in blood pressure and heart rate were essentially the same between the two groups. Listen back to the February 2022 MRAP segment for a little bit more on drugs you can use in AFib with RBR. You know, it's funny because Mike and Sanjay were talking about, <laughs> like, I cannot take another paper of diltiazem versus metoprolol, right? They're like, <laughs> no more, no more. And honestly, I'm just like, I love them. <laughs> like, I can just keep doing one after the other after the other, right? I it's love, like, this I, is a question yeah. that never dies. It's, it's right? never old. It's, there's a couple of those. There's, the, there's TXA that we're going to keep talking about until oh, we're wait. blue in the face. You just, you just wait. Oh, it's coming. Oh, I know. It's coming. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Paper number five. The use of dexmedetomidine in the emergency department, a systematic review. Dexmedetomidine is a centrally acting alpha-2 agonist sedative. ICU and OR data suggests that it may have benefit over benzos, but research coming from the ED is limited. These authors performed a systematic review of what ED literature is out there and found 35 papers, including 11 randomized trials. Indications for use included procedural sedation and analgesia, ED sedation of agitated patients, prevention of ketamine-associated recovery agitation, and sedation for radiologic imaging. Most of the studies had limited evidence regarding efficacy, but moderate evidence was found for facilitating medical imaging. Adverse events of bradycardia and hypotension were infrequent and generally transient. If we want to start including dexmedetomidine in our sedation repertoire, we need to see some well-done randomized trials come out from our specialty. For a bit more on this med, you can listen to the MRAP June 2019 Critical Care Mailbag. Paper number six, outcomes in ED patients with nonspecific ECG findings and low high-sensitivity troponin. This paper is a secondary analysis of prospective registry data that was collected several years ago as part of the application for FDA approval for a high-sensitivity troponin analyzer. They looked at just over 1,300 patients aged 22 and over, who had acute chest pain or shortness of breath or some other symptom that was thought to be an anginal equivalent. These authors wanted to look at how the high-sensitivity troponin performed in patients with a nonspecific ECG. So any patient with a STEMI or, or obvious hemodynamic instability was excluded. Patients were divided by whether they had a negative or positive initial high-sensitivity troponin and whether their ECG was normal or had nonspecific changes. And then they compared MACE within 30 days for these different groups. Of all these groups, the ones that we are most interested in are those who had a negative troponin and either a normal or nonspecific ECG, 
these are the ones we're going to be trying to discharge, right? The MACE rate in patients with a negative trope and a normal ECG was 4.4%. And the MACE rate in patients with a negative trope and nonspecific ECG changes was 3%. Basically the same, right? Four and a half, three, very similar. Suggesting that those nonspecific ECG changes are not associated with any increased risk of MACE. I think this probably reaffirms what many of us are practicing already. Nonspecific ECG changes and a negative troponin, or possibly negative serial troponins depending on some other factors, is probably fine for an outpatient workup, provided, of course, that that can happen in a timely manner. Totally agree, right? It's like, you know, we're doing this. We're right? doing this. I mean, we're, this is what we're doing. And, you know, your tropes, I mean, your high sensitivity, I feel like if you sneeze, your high sensitivity yeah. troponin goes up. So if mm-hmm. it's like if you've got serial ones and they're negative, if your EKG looks a little, you know, off, follow up as an outpatient. Yeah, exactly. All right. Paper number seven. Role of ultrasonography in an implantable tissue larynx model during a simulated front-of-neck axis scenario, a randomized simulation study. If you can't intubate and you can't ventilate, you're going to get a crike. But what about if you can't see or palpate the landmarks? Can ultrasound be helpful? In this simulated porcine model, they found that using ultrasound did not affect success rates, but it did more than double the time to complete the procedure. Incisions done with the ultrasound were about half the size of those in the landmark group, but who cares? I feel like when a patient is getting a crike, go big or go home. Oh, yeah. That's one of those emergency procedures where let them fix it up later. You just got to you got to do what you got to do to right? get the procedure like, done. The patient has bigger fish to fry. So let's just not right, worry right, about right, that. Right, right, right. Right. Yeah. I mean, this, the findings here don't really surprise me. It's not a procedure that you are going to be doing often enough, even if you're practicing all the time, to be super facile with the ultrasound. So it's added steps. It's added stuff right. you're doing. It's going to add time. I think we have to get good at just doing this pretty blind. Paper number eight, intensive blood pressure control after endovascular thrombectomy for acute ischemic stroke. This is an open-label trial that was performed in China. Patients who underwent successful reperfusion for their acute stroke were randomized to a target systolic blood pressure less than 120 versus allowing them to land in the kind of 140 to 180 range that we are typically used to seeing in our stroke patients. Primary outcome was a modified Rankin score at 90 days, and the results were pretty impressive. The likelihood of a poor functional outcome was significantly higher in the intensive therapy group, the low blood pressure group, with an odds ratio of 1.37. And Mike points out that after some number crunching, this turns out to be a number needed to harm of seven, which is crazy and really shows that we should not do this. Now, these are post-procedure patients, so hopefully not ones we are actively managing in the emergency department very often. But should you have to do that, and until some other study comes along that is very markedly different, avoid this aggressive blood pressure control in these patients. You know, and and I think that's great news for the ED, right? We don't like to do, we don't want to be at the bedside all the time. We don't want to be like watching these numbers. Like, let them just kind of like, you know. Let them just coast. Let them coast. Let them coast. Let them coast. All right. Paper number nine, characteristics and outcomes of 360 consecutive COVID-19 patients discharged from the emergency department with supplemental oxygen. This study comes to us from Mike and Sanjay. So listen to their full segment since, you know, they wrote the paper. They wrote the paper straight (laughs) from the the horse's mouth. Exactly. 
So this retrospective chart review comes from the L.A. County Public Hospitals. They looked at COVID-19 patients with new O2 requirements that were discharged from the ED with supplemental oxygen. They followed these patients out and reported on some clinical outcomes. 30-day survival was 97%, and four out of five patients didn't require readmission. Prior to COVID, I would never have thought to send someone home under these circumstances. Mm -hmm. But like many other things, COVID has changed the game. And based on this data, it seems like a reasonable approach. Yeah, definitely does. Congrats, Mike and Sanjay, on your paper. Woohoo! Paper number 10, Duration of Clinical Symptoms in Children with Acute Respiratory Infection. This is an interesting study that's trying to determine exactly how long we can expect our pediatric patients to suffer symptoms when they have a acute viral upper respiratory infection. I, I will it's just a- say that based on my end of one household, it seems like <laughs> forever. Indefinitely, right? <laughs> this year, absolutely. <laughs> so it's a retrospective study. They collected nasopharyngeal swabs on children who came to the ED with URI symptoms. And they had the parents fill out a survey to specify which symptoms the child had been experiencing and for how long. And then they did follow-ups at 14 and 28 days. The original swabs, interestingly, and the data along with it, were collected back in 2014 and 2015. But the swabs were frozen and then thawed out and tested in 2018 when we had a robust viral PCR panel that was available. So that's just kind of interesting. The first finding I think that was interesting here was that there were a number of kids that tested positive for more than one virus. 70% were positive for at least one virus, and 10% were positive for two, and 1% were positive for three viruses. So it is just a (laughs) viral soup in these kids. It's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. nightmare. So that's just interesting, right? So they reported on a variety of symptoms, including rhinitis, poor feeding, cough, And as you can probably expect, the duration of the various symptoms ranged widely and ranged depending on the virus that the kid had. But the big take-home really here is that most of the viruses, most of the patients had symptoms lasting for a full week, seven days. And many, many, many of them had symptoms for at least two weeks, probably much longer than parents expect and probably longer than we're really giving them counseling to expect. So for me, this is going to impact my discharge discussions with families from now on. You can expect your kids to just be sick longer than is really fun. Absolutely. And I think like that expectant, you know, management is so important for parents. So important. Right? It'll just keep them from like coming back and being like, my kid's still coughing. It's been like 10 days. Yep. They're going to keep coughing. Yep. Keep coughing. Keep coughing. Mm -hmm. All right. Paper 11. Nebula. Oh, here it comes, Jenny. Here it comes. Oh, here we go. Here it comes. Nebulized versus intravenous tranexemic acid for hemoptysis, a pilot randomized control trial. Okay. No EMA ultra summary is complete without TXA. Without a paper on TXA. It's just not. (laughs) All right. So this paper starts with the presumption that TXA works for stable hemoptysis and assesses whether it works better when given IV or through a nebulized treatment. Bleeding cessation within 30 minutes was better with the neb with about three-quarters of the group stopping versus only a half when given IV. Fewer patients in the NEB group needed a procedure, and two-thirds were discharged from the ED compared to about one-third with IV. One major problem with this study was generalizability. This paper came out of India, where the number one cause of hemoptysis was TB, 
which will likely not be the case for us. That being said, the downside is low, so I would still be willing to drop some in a nab and see how it goes. Yeah, I love that. And this is such good news for TXA, which, you know, has been you know <laughs> so beat up lately on EMA. So good for good you, for TXA. You, TXA. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't compare you to like control, like of nothing. But good for you, right. TXA. True, true. Standard good care. Good, good for you. <laughs> Paper number 12, resolution of fever in the pediatric emergency department and bacteremia. This is a retrospective review of EMR data on peds patients asking whether resolution of their fever, or lack thereof, is correlated with the presence or absence of bacteremia. In order to be enrolled, the child had to have a fever, have an antipyretic given, have a repeat temperature taken, and blood cultures performed. Children who remained febrile at two and four hours after the antipyretic had a slightly higher odds of bacteremia, but this was very slight. And as Mike points out, the fact that the children had to have blood cultures drawn to even be enrolled in the study suggests that this is a cohort of rather sick patients. Your run-of-the-mill pediatric fever patient, i.e. every child we talked about in the previous study, is not getting blood cultures. So the clinical utility of this is kind of questionable. All right, paper 13, Improving Discharge Safety in a Pediatric Emergency Department. ED discharge is fraught with potential problems. Is the patient safe to go? Do they understand their instructions? Do they know when to follow up? The Tertiary Children's Hospital in this study had four discharge-related serious safety events in two years and wanted to make things right. They implemented a standardized discharge process involving a checklist, provider huddle, review of vital signs and test results, a scripted review of the instructions, and they created this with input from just about everyone. And at the end of the day, there was no difference in length of stay, return visits, or press gainy. There were no serious safety events during the study period, but could this have been accomplished with way less effort? Probably. That sounds very cumbersome, and I, <laughs> I don't want that to come to an ED near me. <laughs> This is what nightmares are made of. <laughs> are we ready to huddle? It ready takes to huddle 15 to minutes to huddle to discharge every patient. It's like, just like, it's like, look at the vital signs. Make sure they're not like, remember sick. to review the labs again. Like, look at the labs again one last time before you send them out because you might have missed something. Make okay. sure everything came back. Check on your patient. Talk to them. Tell Say them they're day. being discharged. Right. <laughs> Say good day. Okay. Paper number 14. Covered or uncovered? A randomized control trial of tegaderm versus no tegaderm for ocular ultrasound. This is a nice single-site unblinded RCT where they looked at using tegaderm over the eye during point-of-care ocular ultrasound. Many of us do this to protect the eye from discomfort, keep the gel from getting in the eye, make the cleanup easier, a variety of reasons, or, or maybe just because we were kind of taught to do it and never thought about why we were doing it. They found in this study that the image quality was much better without the tegaderm and that patient discomfort wasn't really any different. Patients did seem to have a slight preference for the use of the tegaderm, but this probably doesn't outweigh the better image quality achieved without the tegaderm. If you need a refresher for how to use POCUS for your ocular ultrasound, specifically for retinal detachments, we have an MRAP HD video on that that you could check out. What about like saran wrap? Like to round their whole head? <laughs> just like saran wrap, like on their eye, and then do it. I just, the tegaderm, it's like, 
on the eyebrows. You know what I mean? It's yeah, like I always worried about taking out all their eyelashes right. with the tegator when you pull it off. Yeah. Why just not a piece of saran wrap? Yeah, maybe. I think probably either way you're going to get better image quality without it. Well, that's true. Just before you stick the probe on the patient's eye, please clean it because I have seen <laughs> ultrasound probes in many ERs and you got to got to give that one a wipe down before you stick it on someone's face. Disgusting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can do mine with saran wrap. All right. <laughs> Don't put that thing on my eye. Paper number 15. Billy Rubin displacing the fact of ceftriaxone in term infants with unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia. Ceftriaxone is contraindicated in neonates due to the concern that it displaces bilirubin, which can cross the blood-brain barrier, causing auditory and neurotoxicity. However, the author points out that the evidence for this is based on in vitro studies. So is this just fake news? He took 27 infants less than one week old admitted to the NICU with sepsis that had been on IV antibiotics for three days with a total serum billy less than 12 and gave them a dose of IV ceftriaxone. And guess what? There was no change in their bilirubin levels. Dun, dun, dun. Whoa. <laughs> but why do we care? Well, neonates requiring antibiotics end up getting admitted for over a week for continued IV treatment. If they could get IM ceftriaxone, they could potentially be discharged and the medication continued as an outpatient, decreasing hospital length of stay and saving a ton of moolah. While this paper is certainly not practice changing, it could potentially open the door for further studies. Yeah. I'd I'd like to point out, not just the saving the moolah and and the hospitalization lengths of stay, et cetera. Nobody wants their little new baby in the hospital. That sounds terrible. And then they're just going to get something else. So if we can do anything that would get them to get their treatment outpatient, great. Agree. Paper number 16, medical masks versus N95 respirators for preventing COVID-19 among healthcare workers, a randomized trial. This is a multinational randomized trial comparing standard medical masks to N95 masks, where they randomized healthcare workers who had never had COVID, interestingly, who had not been vaccinated and had no risk factors for serious disease to the two different mass groups, and they found no statistically significant difference between the infection rates in the two groups. The adherence for the mask use was better in the standard mask group than in the N95 group, which I guess makes sense because the N95 is uncomfortable. This suggests that for routine medical care, the regular mask is likely sufficient, but the paper does not address aerosolizing procedures or high-risk situations, so for now, I would certainly stick with your N95 in those situations. Okay. Paper 17. Emergency Department Embedded Palliative Care Service Creates Value for Health Systems. Palliative care can be initiated at any time to ease suffering, as opposed to hospice, which is typically initiated in the last six months of life. Integrating palliative care in the ED can improve quality of care, reduce hospitalizations, and decrease cost. The authors of this study embedded a palliative care service in the ED to see if it was clinically meaningful, viable, and cost-effective. Consults were initiated by either the ED clinician or the palliative care provider. This resulted in a tenfold increase in consultations over a one-year period from 70 to over 700. Half of the patients consulted changed their code status, and about 10% were admitted to a lower level of care. For patients that had an ED consult, 
they had an average of an eight-day shorter hospital length of stay and saved 6000 in direct costs. So, you know, as someone who's often the first person to discuss code status with a patient, I am totally on board. 100% totally on board. Paper number 18, COVID-19 and excess all-cause mortality in the U.S. and 20 comparison countries, June 2021 through March 2022. This paper compares COVID-specific mortality and all-cause mortality that was reported to the World Health Organization across 20 countries that make up the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Develop, or OECD. This is mostly countries in Western Europe, but also includes Israel, Australia, and New Zealand. Using this mortality data, the authors compare the COVID vaccination and mitigation strategies during the Delta and Omicron waves from these countries to those in the United States. I'm going to get in the weeds here a little bit because it's interesting. COVID death rates across the 20 countries in that OECD during these two spikes ranged from 3.7 in 100,000 in New Zealand to 65 in 100,000 in Australia. Pretty big range with the average right about 42 in 100,000. For the U.S. overall as a whole, it was 117 in 100,000. A lot more deaths. The 10 most vaccinated states had a rate that was better, 75 in 100,000, but that still would be the highest of any of the countries in this study. So our best states were still the worst of all these countries. Our lowest vaccination states, those 10 states with the lowest vaccination rates, had a death rate of 146 in 100,000. When looking at the all-cause mortality, the numbers got even worse. All in all, what this means is that we had 350,000 excess deaths occurring in the United States during the Delta and Omicron waves that maybe could have been avoided if we had similar COVID containment strategies and vaccination rates as these other average countries in this OECD, which is, you know, most of Western Europe, Israel, Australia, and New Zealand. So that's kind of disappointing. A bummer of a paper here toward the end of EMA. But, you know, I, I don't think terribly surprising for any of us. Um, and really proof that vaccines do work, you know, in these countries where it was getting better vaccination rates and containment strategies, the numbers really were a lot better. Yeah, it's pretty disappointing. Yeah. All right. Well, you know, maybe we can do better. Can still still hope to do better, right? This is not going anywhere. So, yep. Get your boosters, everyone. Get your boosters. Get your boosters. Paper nineteen: Price comparison of human and veterinary formulations of common medications. This paper looked at the price of the most frequently filled medications at GoodRx and Costco and compared it to Chewy.com. The average human retail price was higher than the pet price for over 90% of the meds, and the discounted price was higher in about two-thirds of them. On average, the human formulations were one and a half times more expensive at Costco and five and a half times more expensive at GoodRx. Am I surprised by any of this? Not in the least. It tells us that human meds are way overpriced since they can clearly be manufactured at a lower cost, but it's all supply and demand. We are clearly willing to pay big bucks for ourselves and our loved ones, but if we had to pay the same for Fluffy, would we? I mean, I would. (laughs) (laughs) My kitty is my other baby. All right, kids. Fluffy was a good, good cat, but it's come the end of time for Fluffy. (laughs) 
Paper number 20, reduced emergency department visits and hospitalization with use of an unsanctioned safe consumption site for injection drug use in the United States. This is a small study of patients who use injection drugs, comparing those who use drugs at an unsanctioned safe site, so something that is not official, technically not legal probably, versus those patients who did not. So a safe consumption site allows people to use drugs in a monitored setting with clean needles hopefully reducing opioid overdoses and infections. They conducted a year-long study of almost 500 individuals who used their drugs near the safe site. 12% of those individuals actually used it at the safe site, and they used propensity score matching to match them to individuals who did not use the safe injection site. They found a non-significant decrease in overdoses in the group that used the safe injection site, as well as a significant decrease in self-reported ED use and hospitalizations. Now, of course, there could be some differences in just the individuals themselves who self-select to go to a safe injection site, and that could complicate our interpretation of this. But it is compelling in concept and something that I think we're actually starting to see more of around the country to try and help curb the opioid epidemic. I'm optimistic that this is something you know good and that could work. So I'm hoping we're going to see some more on this in the future. That brings us to the end of our March EMA Ultra Summary. Hopefully, our summary did not come in like a lion and out like a lamb, or or maybe it (laughs) did. That bummer of a paper toward the end meant maybe it was more like a lion. Maybe it came in like a lamb and out like a lion. So let's hope March does the opposite. Sounds good. All right. We'll see you next month. See you next month. It's time to talk a little natty. Talk a little natty with Ken Milne. Welcome to the March Time to Talk a Little Nerdy. This is Swami here, as always, with my good friend Ken Milne. Ken, welcome to March. Spring is sprung, the grass is riz. I wonder where the Swami is. (laughs) Now, uh, you said spring. Is it spring where you are yet, or is that another month later? You know, like, are we talking strictly calendar or are we talking, you know, like Are there buds popping out of the ground, Ken? Is the snow melted? Listen, you know, Mel Herbert hates it when we talk about the weather, but we have two seasons in Canada, August and winter. (laughs) It's not a bad problem to have. Uh, We have less snow than you do, and we do have some buds coming up. And we have a great topic to drop into It's about control groups and how those control groups are selected, a topic that we haven't really hit on yet. And a lot of this was stirred by an article that both of us kind of looked at. We looked askance at it. Uh, It was by Moore and colleagues, and it got a lot of attention at the end of last year. And the article is Head and Thorax Elevation During Cardiopulmonary Resuscitation Using Circulatory Adjuncts is Associated with Improved Survival. This was in Resuscitation 2022. We could go off about the issues that both of us have on the article and how the data is reported, but that's not really what we want to dive into. I do have a lot of problems with the title and how they use their data, but what we really want to focus in on is how they created a control group and how that can be done better and how it's done in a lot of articles that we look at. Sure. Yeah. Let's talk about control groups. Uh, If people want to do a deep dive, We actually did a structured critical appraisal of this paper on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. And our bottom line was, we cannot recommend the use of an automated controlled elevation of the head and thorax, or ACE, 
CPR device at this time. But let's talk about control groups. Yeah, let's get into that because this is time to talk a little nerdy. And so we got to dissect this specific aspect of research. Can we hold the RCT to kind of be the ideal study? Randomized, double-blind control trial, that is what we are looking for. When we perform an RCT, how are those controls selected? Well, I'm going to push back a little bit on your statement. Yes, an RCT is often held up as, ah, you know, the be-all and end-all, the gold standard. And it can answer many types of questions that we have, but it's not the ideal study design to answer some questions. In other words, Swami, it all depends on what question you're trying to answer. But back to your question that you want me to answer is how are control groups selected when doing a randomized controlled trial or an RCT? Well, this is done through the randomization process. Researchers should recruit consecutive patients to minimize selection bias, and then they have various methods that they can use to randomly allocate those individual patients to different groups. Now, this can be done with simple randomization methods. Or you can get into more elaborate methods to ensure that there's adequate randomization. Now, block randomization can be done to meet specific needs of the trial, trying to balance groups. And then you can even get broader from block randomization all the way out to clustered randomization. And that divides up groups not by the individual, but by the sites. This type of randomization, cluster randomization, has certain benefits and limitations. And, and we talked about that actually last spring in the April 2022 issue. And people should definitely go back, check out that issue. We've talked a lot about a lot of different issues around randomized control trials. And one of the things that we brought up in the past is that randomized control trial isn't always feasible. So while we'd love to see it, sometimes it simply can't be done. The paper that we referenced up top is an observational study. It's very different than the randomized control trial. Why would you pick an observational trial over doing an RCT? Well, there are a number of reasons to do an observational study instead of an RCT. Some reasons are better than others, but let's review some of them. First of all, harm. I mean, we can't ethically randomize people into a harmful situation. And the parachute trial is the classic example. I mean, we can't fly people up in a plane and throw them out of the plane wearing a backpack as a sham group. I mean, people need to realize the gravity of the situation. And so, of course, harm would be involved. However, most medical practices, they're not parachutes. So we can't randomize people to known harm ethically. A second reason is there are some rare conditions out there. And the condition is rare, so it wouldn't be feasible to do a randomized control trial because it would just be so underpowered. And so using an observational study design to obtain enough data points can increase the power. But Swami, you know that when we do an observational study, we sacrifice the ability to conclude causation. And then, of course, adverse events. And we've talked about this many times. Adverse events are systematically underreported in randomized control trials. And rare adverse events are less likely to be identified because the trials are usually powered not for the bad outcomes, but they're powered for efficacy. And it can take an observational study design to find these problems. And an example of that would be the tendinopathy 
that was identified with the use of fluoroquinolone antibiotics. And then finally, you know, follow the money. Cost. Observational studies generally cost much less than a randomized control trial. And if you want to break down these different types of trial designs, from experimental trial designs to observational studies, you can go to Students for Best Evidence website, and I'll put a link in the show notes, and see a nice flow sheet. Clearly, control group selection is going to be very different in an observational study. We're seeing in that observational study how some intervention or test performs by observing it in action, but we do want to compare it to something else. And what often happens is it's compared to what was prior standard practice. So how can we then select or create a control group for comparison with that observational study design? Yeah, in an observational study, it can be helpful to compare an intervention to a control or some comparison group. Because, you know, when we're doing a treatment analysis, we really want to know, is this treatment going to result in better outcomes, worse outcomes, the same outcomes? And you can't do that unless you have something to compare it to. All you know is how many people had this condition, right? So you can have a concurrent control group, which you follow prospectively. So you follow forward in time, or you can get a retrospective control group referred to as a historic control group. Why would you choose one of those over the other? Why would you choose a concurrent control group or a historical control group? Well, there are a few reasons to use historical control groups rather than a concurrent control group. I'll just go through a few of them. To start with, ethical concerns. I mean, if you're recruiting patients to be in a control group and not offering the opportunity, at least, to be randomized to the intervention, and yes, We assume equipoise when we go into these types of trials, but usually the hypothesis is there's some superiority to the treatment or to the intervention. So there are ethical concerns. And then, of course, you've got to remember harm. It may be unethical for the control group not to receive any treatment. And finally, follow the money, cost. Collecting data retrospectively may be less expensive than collecting data prospectively. So we can see the advantage of using that historical controls. What types of historical controls can be used? There's quite a a variety, right? Nothing is simple, Ken. It's not just historical or the concurrent group, but within historical groups, there are different ways to get that control group formed. Oh, yes. There's always another layer, isn't it? (laughs) So there are several different um, options available to researchers to obtain, I'll put in quotes here, real world data, and they can come from a variety of sources. One source is you can get medical charts, and chart reviews are a very common source of data in emergency medicine research. And there are some quality metrics that should be used when conducting this type of research. Just because you're doing a chart review, which is a lower level of evidence, an observational study, doesn't mean you should do it poorly. You should use the best methods available. And if you want to know what the best methods available for an emergency medicine chart review you can go over to Worcester et al. in Annals of Emergency Medicine, and it was published almost two decades ago. Now, another method would be to use patient registries. Large databases of patient registries from different sources exist, so it depends what you're looking at. You can get post-marketing surveillance done by pharmaceutical companies. There are things like Get With The Guidelines registries, and that's for TPA and stroke. There are large trauma registries out there. 
And then there's that large U.S. ambulatory care database called NAMCS or N-A-M-C-S. And these databases collect information on patients who were treated. And then a third option would be to go looking for natural history trial data. These are slightly different than patient registries. They typically follow a disease to identify the demographics, the genetics, environmental factors, and other variables that correlate or are associated with the disease and its outcome in the absence of treatment. They often provide much more granular data to the investigators. So these are some types of historic controls that can be used. Can you always do a really good job of pointing out that one study design isn't bad and another study design good. It's a matter of how that data is collected, how it's compared, how you generate those historical controls. So when we're selecting a historical control group, what challenges are there that we should recognize as we are creating both the control group and our study design? Yeah, it's not good versus bad. It's, you know, every study design needs to be critically appraised, looked for its limitations, looked for its strength. Why was it used? Is it the best method? And when it comes to using historical controls, there are a number of limitations to that. We want the historic controls to be as close as possible to the study group of interest in their baseline characteristics, how these people were treated, how they were evaluated, and their outcome of interest. So I've broken this down into sort of three issues with regards to historical controls. The first one, the obvious one, is these weren't randomized patients. We're not talking about a randomized control trial. We're talking about an observational study and grabbing some historic data to refer to and compare to. So there's no randomization. And so selection bias can make these two groups different. And remember, when I'm using the term bias, I'm talking about something that systematically moves us away from the quote-unquote truth. And this can lead to baseline differences if you've got selection bias, both in measured things and unmeasured things. And these differences are confounders that cannot necessarily be controlled for when using historic data. The other big thing is, these aren't blinded studies. And this can lead to things like performance bias due to lack of blinding, detection bias due to lack of blinding, attrition bias, and even bias in the statistical analysis. And if you're interested in biases, which of course I am, you can find out more about these biases at the Center for Evidence-Based Medicine website. I'll throw a link in the show notes. And the final thing I wanted to talk about was temporal issues or temporal issues. I never know how I'm supposed to say it in the U.S. <laughs> skeletal, skeletal, laboratory, laboratory, <laughs> composite. Oh, I could go on. Anyways, temporal issues. Things change over time, Swami. And um, the way things were done in the past may not be the same way things are done now. And we're, remember, we're using a historic control. So how historic is that data? Does it go back months, years? decades to get those historical controls. How things are categorized can change over time. How we evaluate conditions can change over time. How we treat patients and even assess them for their outcomes can change over time. All of those three points you bring up are really important. The temporal issue is one I think we don't pay as much attention to, even if you take a historical control group from five years ago. The way that we manage certain entities five years ago is so different today that it's very hard to compare these groups, especially when we're looking at outcomes. And it's not just in the specific treatment that the study might be looking at. 
but it might be all of the other treatments around that disease as well. And I think that's a really important thing to always keep in mind. Like you said, is how far back is that historical control group? But can it could even just be six months or a year ago. And there might be a dramatic change in how our treatment is for that patient group. So we do really need to understand and recognize that. When we go back to the article we mentioned at the top, the researchers were looking at the performance of a new approach to CPR. What did they use as their historical control group? Well, they went to three large NIH-funded randomized control trial de-identified patient-level data on out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So these three large trials were the PRIMED, the ROC-ALP, and the RESCUE trial. You mentioned some of the problems that crop up with historical controls. Let's bring that back to the specific paper. And what, what our hope is, is that people will read that paper, listen to this in conjunction with that, and kind of understand where these limitations pop up. So what problems popped up in this historical control group that was selected in this article? Well, there's a lack of randomization, which means there can be baseline differences between the groups. And the authors attempted to control for these baseline differences using something called propensity score matching. Propensity score matching is a mathematical technique used in observational studies to try to minimize confounders. It can potentially improve the accuracy of minimizing some of these biases. However, it can never address unmeasured confounders and get to the level of a randomized control trial. A friend of mine refers to this propensity score matching as statistical jiu-jitsu. And if you want to know more about propensity score matching, there is a 2011 paper that gives a really good explanation of propensity score matching, and I'll throw a link in the show notes. Probably a topic that we should get into down the line is talking about propensity score matching and why it can be a problem. But you're right, there are so many confounders that are going to be very difficult, if not impossible, to control for. And Ken, you know, again, we've talked about this before, you can only control for the things that you know are contributing to issues. You can't control for the things that you're not aware might be causing changes in how patients have their outcomes. Again, looking back at this specific article, any other issues that popped up when you were reading it that you think are important in the biases or, or how this data was collected or how this data was interpreted? What are you saying, Swami? Are you saying there's known knowns, known unknowns, and unknown unknowns? <laughs> and unknown unknowns, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And I don't want to give credit to Donald Rumsfeld for saying that, but yes, there are unknown unknowns. Yeah, no. And, and how can you control for something if you never even measured it and didn't even consider it being a potential confounder? But getting back to this paper, I can see potential other biases like performance bias, detection bias, and of course, we mentioned it, time trend effects. The performance bias really pops up in my mind again, because like you said, this isn't blinded. It'd be very difficult, if not impossible, to blind people to using this device or not using this device. And you can imagine that people are going to be like, oh, we got a new device for CPR. Let's do a really good job. And, and that could really change the outcomes that we see or, or affect the outcomes that we see. We like to see blinding of the outcome assessors. Sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not there. But these are all things that we have to think about as we're reading through that paper. I want to go back in time to the start of this paper, the start of this specific article and the research methods and the data collection. And I'm going to put you in charge. I'm going to put you in charge of creating the control group as part of this research team. What would you have done differently in how you created a control group to compare this new intervention? Well, I hope our wonderful audio engineers will put some kind of sound file for time travel here. <laughs> 
Swami, I probably would have designed a cluster randomized control trial. Different EMS services or base stations, they could be randomized to be using this ACE CPR device or using usual care, the standard CPR method that's typically used in their EMS service. And this cluster design would mitigate against some contamination between intervention and control participants. You know, you know you're throwing on this fancy new device that elevates the head. And, you know, uh, if you're doing it sort of randomly within the station, it can really contaminate the times when you're not using the device. So if you just have a separate unit, that station over there is going to do it this way, this station over there, or this whole EMS service will do it this way, and that EMS service will do it a different way. You can get around that. It can also be easier to recruit patients because you're going to have this trial where that's the CPR that's being done, whether it's the ACE CPR or the other CPR. So it might be easier to recruit participants into the trial. The cluster design would also be less expensive because only the cluster sites that are doing the ACE CPR need the fancy new ACE CPR device. I like those improvements. And Ken, I think it's really important for us to point this out, that if we're going to critique and criticize the methods of an article, we should also talk about how it could be done better in the future. And hopefully that's what we'll see in the future with this specific approach. Let's be honest, Ken, we would all love a better way to deliver CPR that gives us better outcomes. You and I agree that this specific data set, this specific article doesn't give us anything to push us towards this specific approach, but we would love to see something that would improve outcomes. So hopefully there'll be more research in this area and hopefully they'll do a better job. Those researchers will do a better job with the way they put together that research protocol, that data collection, so that we can get real information that we can translate to the bedside and how we take care of patients. Well, I'm going to summarize that for you, Swami, and say we need to be asking the right questions using the right methodology with patient-oriented outcomes. And that way, we can provide the best care possible. Oh, that is a great way to end this, Ken. And I think going through this historical controls, why they're there, why they get used, how they can get used better, and for the listeners to look for when you see historical controls, to look for those specific areas that could have been done a little bit better or were done well so that you can really use that information. I think this will go a long way to helping people understand that process. It definitely helps me understand why you'd pick historical controls and why there might be some flaws in that design. Ken, thanks so much for talking nerdy. And of course, we'll be back in April for another time to talk a little nerdy. And uh, we're going to have to see what our topic will be. We're not sure yet, but maybe we'll get into one of the things like propensity score matching that we mentioned in the podcast today. I, I do have a propensity to talk nerdy. <laughs> All right, Ken. Can't wait to see you next time. Goodbye, March EMA. Beware the Ides of March, but goodbye, March EMA. I hope that you know spring is right around the corner that you're starting to see some glimmers of sunshine if you're in those cold and dreary places such as southern california what we're experiencing oh, yeah. right now terrible worst worst <laughs> it is i'm i you know i've said it before i'll venture to say it again we're currently in the coldest place on earth yeah right we now. are spoiled I, I we are spoiled today southern and i had Cal to go back inside and put on a hoodie yeah that we're, happened that's we're real spoiled southern californians you know, one day of rain where I can't take Toby for a walk is like disrupts my whole week, my whole sort of mental state. I don't like it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want it. I'm, I'm, I'm done with winter one weekend. <laughs> we have, it's not quite seasonal affective disorder, right? It's like, it's like 
momentary no, it's weather. Seasonal, it's seasonal effect of the story only lasts a day. It <laughs> lasts 12 hours. Yeah, it's incredibly short. <laughs> But incredibly intense. It really, it's it's just, it's the expectation going right. in. I expect it to be sunny every single day here in 75 degrees. And when it's not, I feel like I'm justified in being upset. I don't pay these high property prices to have rain outside. Yeah. <laughs> what kind of life is this? Wow. Wow. Even <laughs> even your eye watch is upset about yeah, it. She's like, I found this on the web. There's, there's, it's raining in Southern California. Is this true? Siri just even asked me. even machines are upset. This is the this is where we live. Everybody. This is the end of days. Welcome to my world. All right. Anyway, everybody. Hey, those of you writing in saying you're listening all the way to the end, you know who you are. Hashtag outro rocks. Hashtag, hashtag st- stay classy. And even if you don't mind the hashtag, you just stay classy. No matter what, stay classy.